Welcome to another edition of Turned Out of Punk. I'm your host, Damian Abraham, and once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved with punk, but had the life changed by the genre in a major way. Today on the show, huge guest, someone I've been a fan of for a very long time. Yeah, a person who had an immense impact on my punk journey, but we'll talk about that in a second. From the band Blatz, from the band The Criminals, and most recently of the brand new fantastic scene killers from England, Jesse Luscious, a.k.a. Jesse Townley, is on the show. And as I said, this play, this one goes. This is one of those ones which has got a lot of cool parts to it. I'm very excited for you to hear it. More on that in one second. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, head over to the email address, turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. That is run by my brother and show producer and normally guest booker extraordinaire. But this was booked by me, hence why it took a very long time to happen. Uh, Tristan Abraham, and he will get the message to me. Uh, he also uh, does the Instagram page for this podcast. There's a YouTube page for this podcast, a TikTok page for this podcast, and uh, I know I'm probably forgetting something in their Facebook. I said Facebook. Anyway, all of those are found at Turned Into Punk on their respective platforms, and I, I make videos out of some of these old episodes and put up links and all sorts of stuff. So follow that stuff if you are so inclined. You can find me, though, on Twitter for now, X, they call it. I think they call it X now. And Instagram, at left for damien uh, if you want to support the show, tell all your friends about it. Let them all know that we do this podcast each and every week, and we talk to someone who likes punk, and it's uh, always kind of a different vibe and always fun. Uh, you can also check out the band I play in. We are called Fucked Up, and you can find out more information at fuckedup.cc. We have some incredibly awesome tours coming up where we're going to be going on tour with the damned. <laughs> Fucking damned. Oh, my God, I'm excited for this. And uh, we're going to be playing this weekend. If you're around, actually, it's sold out. But if you are around, come say hi. If you're at the show with the Gorilla Biscuits and Restraining Order and uh, the, the good buddies, the good, good buddies in Coal World. And I cannot wait to see them. And hopefully, maybe you. Who knows? I don't come out to any of those shows. You know, we'll smoke weed, hang out. Uh, if you want to, uh, that, well, that's it. That's all I got for you in terms of uh, supporting what I do. Uh, let's get on to today's show. As I said off the top, Jesse Blatz is here. Jesse Luscious is here. Jesse Townley is here. Someone who I met years ago at the Lookout Record Store and punished immensely probably on that trip. But here we are reconnecting all these years later. And I don't want to spoil anything, but there's this this goes some cool places, and I'm, I'm excited for you to hear it. And we have a, a pretty deep conversation about punk. Jesse is... Someone who's a lifer. He's worked, you know, in addition to playing in all these sort of legendary bands, he also has worked at all these different punk labels from Lookout to Alternative Tentacles to Fat Records. And so he's someone who's got like a unique perspective and also one of the people that was running the Gilman during the uh, the boom period of everything. So he's got a really unique perspective on this culture and this scene. And uh, yeah, it took a long time for this to happen, but oh my gosh, am I glad that it has now. As I said off the top, Jesse plays in this great new band called The Scene Killers with uh, Fucked Up's good buddy from way back when. Austin's in the band too. It's amazing how small this punk rock world is where all these people end up connecting in some way. Uh, you can check out their records over at their uh, Bandcamp. They have a Scene Killers Bandcamp. 
scenekillers.bandcamp.com. There's also scene.killers on the Instagram to check out uh, what they've got going on. And if you have never checked out Blatz, you are missing out on a legendary band that is, uh, you know, if, if patches on punk jackets and vests could be uh, platinum records, they would be double diamond in the world of, of punk patches and, and music. And the, the filth Blatt split is one of the all time legendary lookout releases. Absolutely essential listening. Also love the criminals. So check out the criminals, check out everything Jesse does. And, uh, that is it. I'm not going to ramble on anymore because it's a long one. So oh, also, Oh, I should also make note that Jesse has a uh, radio show, which you can check out over at, mmradio.co.uk and it's losing it with Jesse Luscious or losing it with Luscious but it's Jesse Luscious uh, anyway check out that radio show check out all the stuff Jesse does and sit back relax and enjoy Jesse Townley on Turned Out of Punk Jesse thank you for coming on the show my pleasure well, you have had one of the unfortunate distinctions of being a guest that I booked instead of my brother. So this has taken literally <laughs> years to happen. So I apologize <laughs> for that. No worries. He's, he's a lot more efficient than I am. But uh, as I was telling you off air, like as I sat down and kind of like, you know, started correlating my notes and putting stuff together for this. Oh, man, we're going to have fun. There's a lot to talk about, including, you know, your personal involvement in, on my punk rock journey later on but we we will get there well we might not get there in this part to be honest because there is a lot to get to oh but gosh I, okay i gotta start off the way they all start off which is jesse how'd you get into punk do you remember the first time you came across it the, well the very first time was something i didn't know i mean i knew it was punk but my very first live show was seeing joan jett and the black hearts in 1984 at uh the ripley i think no the tower theater that's in uh, right outside of Philadelphia, uh, outside of West Philly. And um, opening was the Ramones. So oh, that wow. was my first official punk rock band. I knew the song Beat on the Brat with the Baseball Bat from WMMR, which is the local, one of the two local rock stations somehow. And I was like, oh, I recognize this song. And like me and my, we were both, me and my friend were both uh, in 1984. I was either 13 or 14. And then like these two guys in leather jackets were in front of us and they were like, we're here for the Ramones. And we're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. And, was it just through, later, go on, sorry. Oh, and later I was able to actually see the Ramones um, while knowing more than one song by them uh, a half a dozen, two dozen times. It was, a, I saw them a lot before they broke up. So I feel really lucky because um, they are one of the best bands in the whole wide world. So absolutely. Was it like, just through listening to rock radio that you kind of heard about Joan Jett and, and, you know, once again, beat on the brat. Oh yeah. I was a total like rock kid and it like hard rock. Um, growing up on the East coast. Um, I had no idea what a, a reggae was or what a country was. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, now, of course I know a lot more about both yeah. of those, but um, at the time it was all about like, listening to the local rock radio, like knowing that like bands like journey and foreigner, were kind of awful in Asia and just kind of we'll see and just not very interesting. But then like ACDC, Joan Jett are still two of my favorite bands ever. Um, and so bands like that, like Hearts song Barracuda, some of the other Hearts songs, not so much, but like, you know, anything with a good F and riff, I was, I was down for. And then later I realized how much 
bass was important. So that's when I got more into funk and hip hop. Like I was all about the bass as well. So mm-hmm. what about like bands like the Hooters or the Reds, like sort of those bigger oh, yeah. wave bands? Nem Hooters. Yeah. yeah. yeah all, all you zombies. <laughs> yes, yeah, that, of was, course. that was, that was huge. I mean, uh, Nem Hooters, there was uh, George Thurgood and the Delaware Destroyers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they were, well, Delaware is part of the tri-state area in Philly. So, you know, New, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Delaware. And uh, so, yeah, I grew Neighbors, yeah. I grew up on George Thurgood and the Hooters. Uh, Robert Hazard was the hometown hero. He's the guy who wrote uh, Time After Time for Cyndi Lauper. Well, he wrote it and then Cyndi Lauper made it a hit. Yeah. Um, but he was kind of like the new wave guy who like everybody knew somebody who knew his daughter who was our age going through school through the, you know, <laughs> like it was, you know, I've never actually met her, but um, I've heard all about her, <laughs> but that was our, our connection to rock and roll royalty in, in Philly. <laughs> yeah. Cause it does feel like Philadelphia has these bands that don't necessarily get bigger internationally, but are like gods within the oh, yeah. area. I mean, Robert Hazard, uh, escalator of life. Uh, people should definitely, that's a great new wave song. Um, I could sing it for you word for word, but I don't think that's going to be a great use of people's listening time. So I'll hold off today. I want to hear a cover. I want to, I want to definitely hear you do a cover. <laughs> oh, I would love, I would do, there's a whole breakdown, which is awesome, which I'd love to effing do. But um, anyway, um, but the, the real, my real entry into punk rock was uh, I was in study hall in 10th grade and literally like the weird um, transfer kid from, I think, I want to say he was from, uh, Illinois or uh, Indiana, I think it was Indiana. He was uh, uh, speaking the lyrics to Big Lizard in My Backyard. Um, I think Bitch Camaro, to be exact. I'm like, what's that? Like, I was part of the geeks and nerds. Like, we played Dungeons and Dragons. I was on the chess club. Uh, We weren't a team because, you know, uh, but I mean, I went to like in high school, I was in a Quaker school. So it was like smaller school. And it was like super smart, like great teachers. So like we were really encouraged to like be weirdos. Um, and even the jocks later on found punk rock to be really interesting. Um, but like, you know, we were skaters, um, played D&D, um, this uh, other uh, thing called Gamma World, which is like a different uh, role-playing game, like just all that kind of stuff. So like the punks all two of them uh, were part of our crew in my grade. And then um, they went like, they went, they were like, yeah, we're going to go see um, uh, Black Flag play. And then they went to see them. It was like an 85 and the show got shut down by the uh, Philadelphia fire department, I believe. So that was like an infamous show that didn't happen. I was like, wow, I almost didn't see Black Flag, <laughs> you know, but, um, but a year later, uh, so this kid was like, you know, singing uh, dead milkman songs. And I was like, what's that? And he's like, I'll make you a tape. So he brought me a tape. One side was uh, Dead Milkman, Big Lizard in My Backyard, uh, full length record. And then the other side was the Sex Pistols, Never Mind the Bollocks. And that was it. And then I asked my friends uh, who are punks, uh, my friend Greg Kramer, uh, this guy Charlie Santori, uh, this guy George Siegel, um, a few other people for like tapes. And so like somebody gave me uh, Let Them Eat Jelly Beans uh compilation and that i just the whole first side of that record i bought 
a record from all of those punk bands. And the other side is famously much more obscure and difficult to get a hold of mentally. Yeah, yes, definitely. <laughs> really, really bizarre, even now, I think, to people, um, even after all these years of like indie rock and like, you know, weird bands, like uh, uh, some of it's quite difficult. Um, it that, That's been a much harder slog. I've never gotten into all of those bands, but um, but the first you know, the first side is for your listeners that aren't familiar. I think it starts out with like Flipper, then it goes like Black Flag, Bad Brains, Dead Kennedys, Circle Jerks, Really Red, Subhumans Canada, Feeders, DOA. Not not that order. I think DOA was the second track. They go Flipper than DOA. And Feeders anyway. are on that side, not the other side. No. To, okay, that's right. They they do Jesus entering from the rear. Yeah. No, I definitely know. (laughs) Which I love playing to shock my um, uh, Christian friends in high school. (laughs) The the, the friends who loved music, and they were like really into Jimi Hendrix. And I was like, check this out. And they were like, this is just wrong. And I'm like, yes. By that time, I I had a skater cut, you know, the whole nine (laughs) yards. So. Yeah, they're kind of like the chaotic neutral Gigi Allen, the feeders. Like, <laughs> you don't know where it's going to go. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah, the chaotic neutral. I like that. Yeah. Definitely. Did you go to that? Were you at that infamous Feeders Gilman show with the animal stuff? No, that was, I moved out to uh, Berkeley in 1989, so I missed that. Okay. But, um, but I heard about it. Uh, I saw it in the Weekly World News and in Maximum Rock and Roll. Like, because by that point, I was like fully into like Maximum Rock and Roll. And then, um, you know, by that point, also the skaters, like we all read Thrasher. And so we heard about DRI, 23 songs, 22 songs. Um, and then like the Beastie Boys came out at the same time. And so all of a sudden, all of the skaters were listening to hip hop. And then like the Beastie Boys listened to ill. That was kind of like the entry point for a lot of kids who were like white kids from uh, from, from the city. Mm-hmm. And then Public Enemy and NWA came out almost right on top of each other and that was that was it you know for like the kind of like crossover and then obviously like you had like the the kind of eh, stuff like the uh, run dmc aerosmith crossover yeah i mean that that was cool that was definitely groundbreaking but then like compared to later stuff it, it kind of pales what about like schoolie d and like so that early yeah. philadelphia stuff like would you hear that on the radio and stuff would that get played or is that later on you're kind of hearing about that not not on rock radio, no. No, oh, no, no, I know definitely not rock radio. <laughs> yeah, no, no progressive rock radio stations like that. <laughs> yeah, no. Um that was uh on the uh the urban stations. So I, I didn't hear it. Because I was listening to like eventually I found I was able to finally get WKDU, which is the local college station in Philly. Um at times I could get it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, I guess going back to the Dead Milkmen, I think they're one of those bands that, unless you're like, they're understood differently if you grew up in Philadelphia, and uh, you know they're like yeah. um, a really important band, obviously, oh, yeah. uh, internationally too. But like in Philadelphia, I think they're like a, you know, like like almost like a minor threat type band to a lot of people. Oh, absolutely. Like they, um, well, not only did they be one side of my first full punk tape, <laughs> but I mean, I saw them. They headlined a show at the Trocadero in 87 with three of the other biggest punk bands. Um, it was Dead Milkman, Ruin, Electric Love Muffin, and FOD. Oh, wow. And so that was like the top four punk bands. I mean, you could have put like, 
serial serial killers or McRad or morphines in there too. But like that was pretty much the top. And my first punk show was my first punk show, My Little Pony, uh, was actually ruined headlining with Electric Love Muffin and a couple other bands um, at an Ollie just show uh, in on South Street. And I I can't I think in addition to Dead Milkman, you have to talk about Ruined as well as being this pivotal band for people from Philly. Um, and also Ruin came out to San Francisco and stayed, I think, two weeks out there in the late 80s, mid-80s, before breaking up. And so I got out to San Francisco, the Bay Area, and people were like, oh, you're from Philly? Do you know Ruin? And I'm like, oh, yeah, they're the best band in the whole wide world, of course. <laughs> so, you know. They also, didn't they used to dress up in robes, too, and do like a whole? Yes. So, yeah, Ruin were uh, Buddhists, apparently. Okay. They were Buddhists, so they dressed in white. They had candles on stage. And they were just this incredible force of nature, like live, like, I mean, I know I was a young punker. So like a lot of things blew my mind pretty quickly, <laughs> but I would say I, I got to see their reunion in 2013. Um, and it was just absolutely fantastic. So, I mean, I, I think, I think everybody, it wasn't a kind of a mass delusion. Like they were actually a really great live band. Yeah, so, I I feel Philadelphia kind of gets the short end of the stick in uh, certainly the East Coast of America in terms of like punk stuff. And it's I talked to Nancy Perillo about it because oh yeah, it's, well it's so fascinating because you know like why there are so many great bands from there, but it's really underdocumented in terms of a vinyl output. And she's like, yeah, well you know it's a, it's a poorer town than a lot of these other cities are, and so you know access to the resources to actually put out a record were difficult to come by for tons of these bands. Yeah, I mean, I have no idea how bands did records. Like, I did a cassette compilation with my zine, Philly Zine at the time. And I just, it was just buying blank tapes and dubbing them. Yeah. Who was on that comp? Jesus. You know, I've been trying to find a copy of that, this compilation for years. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's long gone. But, like, I remember there's a band called, there's a lot of, like, smaller bands uh from new jersey and philadelphia bands like still stupid from philly this band called pointless from new jersey were like a straight edge band and the singer was so young you could hear his voice crack that's awesome i mean yeah it was really really sweet i mean even then at you know at the ripe old age of 17 or 18 i was like oh that's really sweet there was this band called scab cadillac which was a grunge band at the time when grunge was forming like they have a record from like i think 86 and 87 88 somewhere in there like two records actually um so a lot of the smaller bands, I think I asked Morphines for a track. Um, I probably asked Trained Attack Dogs. So like a lot of these like kind of second tier bands, um, Morphines are not a second tier band to me, but I think in terms of like people knowing them, I think bands like Trained Attack Dogs, Still Stupid, you would have had to have been there. There are some of these bands were on like uh, a couple compilations, one called Disc Pan Hands um, on Rave Records. Rave Records did a lot of um, kind of, uh documentation those kinds of bands um but not enough i mean i think nancy is correct like i've never met her i've read interviews with her and like we're one degree of separation away but like she's spot on you know everything i've seen her talk about echoes i mean and to be to be fair like i miss like when she's talking about going to see like why die and like homo picnic and all these other again it was the 80s uh all these other bands in philly um you know at love hall uh, seeing Minor Threat or whomever, like that's before my time. Yeah, you know, li Little Gentleman, The Stickmen, 
Um, there's a bunch of bands, Autistic Behavior, um, Circular Shit. Uh, anyway. That, that, well, that, there's that Get Off My Back compilation, which I think has yeah. probably the, the biggest representation of all these bands you're talking about from that era. Yeah, absolutely. That's actually a perfect one. Yeah, absolutely. Was, um, was, sorry, yeah. go on. No, go ahead. Was, I, what, I can talk forever. Oh, no, sorry, believe me. You are in my wheelhouse right now. This is, I love talking about this <laughs> stuff. Was was Why Die still going? Like, was Black Dust era Why Die happening? Like, the crossover time? No, I mean, you got to understand, I was... 15 16 17 i was only going to all ages shows mm. so anything that they were doing they were um i was just getting hip to the uh anarchist part of the scene politically so this place called wooden shoot books which as of a couple years ago was still existing um i ended up squatting in west philly in a political squad two political wait, wait no one political squad uh up at 51st of baltimore um a few years later um but i was only going to shows that i could find out about in the local alternative paper or through flyers that i saw at the record store um there was really no other way to find out and like bar shows like i didn't have a good fake id until i basically moved to san francisco then i got a fake id and then i could see all those bands and then they also have an all ages scene out there too i guess in a lot bigger way yeah. too as well so was, yeah. what about um did you ever see psychotic norman play they would have been no dead milkman kind of yeah they probably played um bar shows yeah like I, I don't remember them ever being on a like there were some weird bills there was this band called sink manhattan which was our answer to um missing foundation in new york mm -hmm. so they were like the big industrial band with like all the weird stuff they were drumming on kind of stuff with like fireworks and shit you're like oh fuck what the hell's going on um and there was like a lot of, there's this band called Scram, which put out a record on BYO and they were like a reggae band, but they played all the punk shows because they, they were like politically anarchist and whatever. And they were like skinny white kids and like totally down for the cause. Like they were on BYO for a reason, you know, like they were really, really solid on point people. And I think still are apparently. So you would have this reggae band play, this white reggae band in the middle of like, you know, mcrad and morphemes and electric love muffin and then scram and they would draw like hundreds of people so you know <laughs> it worked and mcrad kind of had some parts too that i imagine would kind of be a bridge yeah they had a lot of metal in them but, yeah i mean this the skate rock that that was what they were all about and they were fucking great i saw them so many so many times there's yeah. that fod record i think it's shatter your day it was that geronimo's theme song on it that's one of my favorite punk songs ever <laughs> awesome <laughs> That was that that was their primary record when i got into it i saw that everywhere on buy buy our records yeah we also so did Elliot Love muffin yeah like there seems like there's a real strong new jersey obviously geographically very close but like the scene seems to be very much kind of connected between the two places yeah well you had basically you mentioned philly being overlooked um basically bands did dc if we're if we were lucky Philadelphia, but usually it would just skip Philly and just go directly to city gardens and Trenton and then New York city and then Boston. So like we got skipped all the time. And so we basically had our own bands that, you know, like morphines, like all these bands I'm talking about. Um, but that, we, but we were the only, we were the primary local place you could have shows like Wilmington, Delaware had some shows. Uh, there was a couple of bands from down there. 
there were bands from down the shore, um, but not very many, but they would have to really come to Philly to play. Um, and then later on, like places like uh, Scranton and Lancaster would have shows kind of in Northeastern Pennsylvania. And then after that, Harrisburg, that's not so much. Pittsburgh, yes. But it was basically like Pittsburgh and Philly were the two, and Scranton were probably the three primary places where people played for a long time. Um, probably Lancaster too. Um, but it, we really had, I would say as a, I mean, for my, my impression was that we had a very big inferiority complex compared to New York because, you know, like we would get pissed off. Okay, no, I would get pissed off. I, I won't put this on anybody else. <laughs> At like when I would see kids in Philly, like with like, uh, you know, big puffy sneakers and, you know, track suits and like sweatshirts and athletic sweat sweatshirts. Because I'd be like, look, you want to be New York hardcore, move to Ethel, New York. You know, this is Philadelphia. <laughs> we had some great New York hardcore bands from Philly, specifically Pagan Babies. But like. And I loved I love New York hardcore. Don't get me wrong. Like mm -hmm. Youth of the Day, even to this day, are one of my favorite bands ever. You know, them, Agnostic Front, Sick of It All. I think those three alone, like that's a perfect trio of bands. But um, I mean, even though Youth of the Day were from Connecticut, but, you know, details. Yeah, like, you know, a New York band kind of, uh, you know, certainly where they broke, I guess, at yeah. a certain point. Yeah, yeah. But so, so, but so I would say that just, we were definitely skipped over it. We felt skipped over. But then... That meant that we supported our own bands probably that much more. I, I mean, I'm, and this is from like a kid getting into it as from the all ages thing. So like, you know, like from the people who are like a couple years older than me, aka old enough to either have a fake ID or go to bars, it might have a completely different sense. So, you know, I would, <laughs> yeah, I, I hear people and I read people's uh, memories of growing up through punk rock and even people who we've been in the same place and we remember things differently or have different impressions of people's motivations or overall motivations. And so uh, I, I've recently have become more leery about kind of being more like definitive, like this is how it was. I'll say, this is how I thought it was. Yeah, I absolutely. Stand behind that. <laughs> yeah. hundred percent. I find that too. Like just having people on the show that experience the same thing, but just their perspectives on this moment are so different, like based on what you're bringing into it, your, your previous experience, like it's going to be, yeah, it's going to be different. It's, I guess like the big compilation I can think of is there's a seven inch compilation with ruins on it. I think plus one records did it right. Just, just plus records. Yeah. That was run just by uh, Mark from uh, Mark Pingitori from uh, Pagan Babies. It was uh, FOD, Electric Love Muffin, Ruin, and I think Morphine's. Is that right? I think Morphine's might be on that. Yeah. That, that was the first record I ever got through Mail Order. Oh, so, wow. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. I guess at uh, that point, like, were there, were you going to record stores in town? Like, like, yeah. was there, there must've been great record stores back then too. Well, one, one was there at least as of like the last time I was in town, the Philadelphia record exchange mm -hmm. on fifth, right below South street. That's a great store. And those guys have always been like clued in. Like they were really into a lot of weird stuff. I didn't understand as a young punk, like a lot of the college rock, the college rock, AKA like, REM replacements, Camper Van Beethoven, blah, blah, blah. Um, and now I'm sure like, you know, there's a lot, <laughs> I mean, some stuff I still don't understand musically, but um, so it was hard for me to kind of figure out what was something that was super punk, but then I could go down to fourth street where there was chaos records 
And this guy, Brubaker, who unfortunately passed away a few years ago, um, he was in Circle of Shit. So that kind of gives you how where he's coming from. Uh, they're a famous he, band on yeah. this podcast because of John Worcester. So they oh, are. Really? Yeah, John <laughs> brings awesome. them up all the time. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. Billy Boy Roy and uh, what's his hardcore guy? His Hammerhead. Hammerhead. Oh, my God. Brilliant. Brilliant. Oh, yeah. Absolutely brilliant. He, he That speaks to me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it speaks to me, and I'm not even from there. So I can only imagine being from there how much it speaks right. to you. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, but so, so, Brubaker ran Chaos Records. And so like I could go in as a young kid with a fanzine and say, what should I listen to? And he would be like, just rub his hands, just be like, here you go. And like, you know, it would it, it's like the standard record store, formative record store experience. Like somebody helps like say, oh, you should check this out. You know, um, this fucking rocks. And like, I would just hang out going through records and like listening to like all the older punks talk, you know, and like Henry Rollins did a, a an in-store kind of signing. I remember um, I, he played. What year was that? That'd be the Rollins band. So probably be Hot Animal Machine. So it was like 87, 88. Yeah, it seems like he must have done that around that tour because like my friend uh, MVP, this wrestler, uh, mm-hmm. he, he was talks about this record store he used to always go to. And I was looking for photos of it. And I found like Rollins doing like an in-store around, I think it's 87 as well. So oh, okay, yeah. I was there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, this was this was in Florida, so it must have been on the oh, same okay. tour. I, <laughs> I was there, just in a different state. Yeah, yeah, different state, exactly. Yeah. But <laughs> it, it's uh, and it's also Rollins specifically. I think that's another thing that's hard to kind of like appreciate the cultural impact removed from it temporally, because you know, like I've I've, I've kind of equated it to almost like a. You know, and I don't mean this in a disrespectful way to Rollins, but almost like a a Joe Rogan alpha male kind of thing for young kids. Like I know so many guys, Joe Meganello, the actor mm-hmm. started working out because Rollins and oh wow, you know, uh, Elgin James, uh, you know the writer, um, who I think you have a connection to through the band Force Reality. I do. Yeah, oh, absolutely. But he was talking about how Rollins got him super into like working out and just like <laughs> following Rollins around and stuff. So um but uh, yeah like it's it's interesting like you know you know Rollins obviously a legend music legend but at that point he was like a a cultural figure yeah i mean i i can't overstate how much of an influence his later record lifetime had mm-hmm. on me and my friends like that record blew our minds we were like what is this like we liked the early black flag some of us were progressive enough musically to understand the later black flag at that point not as many because you know it's, it's kind of metal still hard I to mean, get in some of those records now <laughs> well i mean the process of weeding out is garbage yeah that's the one that's the one that yeah. always comes back to for me <laughs> yeah it's like what wh- no but like the rest of them yeah like i mean anyway but um but yeah he was like hot animal machine and uh henrietta collins and the white beating child haters were like those were mind-blowing records and because he was just having fun and just kind of like letting it loose but then he began super serious sometimes you know but then like all of a sudden be like you know uh, you know we have come to kill you <laughs> just like in a chance like we or whatever that song is anyway um anyway but so 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 what so what i would go to those stores and because chaos record chaos records eventually closed and it was replaced by something else in the same spot and then like across the street for a few years relapse records had a storefront 
years later, like in the nineties. Yeah. I remember that. Um, yeah. And so like, there was always usually a record store in that block, <laughs> at least one. So, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's Philadelphia record change, I think has moved now to maybe North. I'm totally terrible with the geography of that city, but mm -hmm. they've moved, but they, obviously they're still around and it's, it feels like there's consistently, I don't know, just cool stuff. Like you mentioned serial killer earlier that's a band i'm serial super killers. yeah i'm super fascinated by serial killers oh i uh so there's i love i love them so much i know them by heart like the records the two records um and they are so fucked up god they're great uh <laughs> <laughs> i mean you know i i, I um uh, found uh there's a, a couple blogs you can download like uh philly uh uh demo tapes and stuff and like live shows and I found found the demo tape. Like I, I've I've had the records since they came out, right? The Hiding House of Horrors, Seven Inch with the Dirt, and then the um, uh, Graveyard Graveyard Rendezvous, or that was called. I've got a Serial copy Kills. of it right behind me too, right okay. now too, because like I just found a second yeah. copy to give to John Worcester. Oh, uh, awesome! <laughs> when I was in England, I was at a record store, and I'm like, oh my god, this is incredible! By then. How did that get there? That's that's really bizarre. Well, but yeah, he, to go he told mm -hmm. me a story um that weirdly also you know you have a cultural connection to in a way but like well set two i guess because he told me a story about going to lollapalooza in philadelphia the year that green day was on but hadn't blown up yet and so green day like but they're obviously on the come up green day yeah. plays super hot set just completely you know explodes the crowd and then nick cave and the bad seeds have to go on after <laughs> and nick cave and the bad seeds are i guess it's not going to be a good set for them coming on after Green Day having that set. So yeah. instead of Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, there was Paul Bearer and the Bad Seeds. And oh. Paul Bearer came out and did the first two songs, I believe, with them. <laughs> <laughs> and that I'm, is awesome. How did that happen? Like, I'm fascinated by all the machinations that went into that. Like, were the Bad Seeds fans of serial killers? Like, right, right. Oh, my God. I, you know, I have no doubt that it was through like the previous decade of like, you know, a Paul Bear just being everywhere in Philadelphia and like the bar scene and like just growing up and like, I'm sure Nick Cave, every time he came through, you know, Paul Bear and all his buddies and like all people for, like Elizabeth and uh, everybody from Morphines and everybody, they were all there. Mm. And so they were probably just like, you know, especially at that time, I think there were, things were much less... Uh, uh, ossified P things were much looser um and it was easier to get a hold of people in a weird way if that makes sense um because uh, if you got a hold of them you're actually talking to them as opposed to some publicist on a twitter yeah account absolutely yeah <laughs> um that's awesome though i mean i saw so here's a gary heitnick connection uh and the serial killers so there's a place called abe stakes which is a legendary philly venue the only show i ever went to there was um serial killers and fod and morphine i don't remember more anyway i saw morphines a lot too so <laughs> that's why i'm always confusing them uh uh but they um so abe steaks was a cheesesteak of just a dusty dirty cheesesteak shop like long and narrow and then it had a back room basically a storeroom um like a tiny room and so um and famously that's where gary gary heidnick would go have a cheesesteak and then the 
McDonald's where he picked up his victims. I mean, this is the unfunny part. Um, he picked up his victims at the McDonald's uh, just to have a block away at 40th and Market. So, and you can still see the Abe Steak. I believe the Abe Steaks uh, sign is still there. Chuck Meehan, who did a lot of the shows, all the all ages shows during my time there, um, he's still active in the scene. Like I, like he's been like posting. Like he's been trying to get the sign that's still on the side of the building because yeah. I mean, it's something else. It has it has been Abe Steaks for like you know decades, but yeah. like it's such a piece of history. Anyway, so I saw the serial killers. At the place where Gary Heidnick hung out to get cheesesteaks. Wow. And that, so is, that the, is that the Gary, and that's the bag of dirt, the Gary Heidnick house so, dirt that it comes with? So, Gary Heidnick, uh, for your listeners, is a serial killer from uh, Philadelphia. He was a real awful, awful, awful person. Um, and obviously, a band called The Serial Killers uh, would gravitate to. Uh, incorporating him into their thing. So pretty yeah. horrific, serial killer, bad person. Um, he got caught and it was obviously huge news. Like, I mean, serial killers weren't really that well known. Um, he was, you know, and I think they found one or two women alive, luckily. Um, but I mean, yeah, Philadelphia is a, could be a br pretty brutal uh, city. Like just a few years early, 1985, the city bombed Move, Move and yeah. killed 11 people. Burnt them to death uh, because they're fucking racist. Uh, the, the the government, not the people they burnt. Yeah, no, yeah, <laughs> sorry, no, but, yeah, uh, yeah. And that's a whole other. That's three or four shows. Uh, but um, so I mean, Philadelphia was pretty pretty gritty, uh, and it's, you know, it's still a tougher town. Like that's the thing. The yeah. uh, you know, I think it, it gets underestimated sometimes. Like it is, it's a tough town. Yeah, I mean, we're we're still pretty tribal. Um, Pretty, the the um the the mascot is actually really perfect because it is a gritty city and he's just out of his mind or its mind i'm not you know and you know he also has these swings of like being totally progressive and open-minded and tolerant and like super awesome and you know the city was is kind of like that like when i was growing up there was it was a lot of i mean there's still a lot of racism there but things were very stratified by neighborhood. But there were neighborhoods that were stratified into being integrated. Like, it was really bizarre. And even within a single neighborhood, you could have bands of like, this part is all white. This part is, starts to get a little mixed. This part is integrated. And like the street I uh, spent half my teenage years, or most of my teenage years on was like that, you know? Yeah. So it's just this really bizarre city um, where like racist white people would be at the top of the block saying i'm i don't go to center city because there's all those kinds of people there and they wouldn't say those people you know even though it was literally two miles as the crow flies from where they were talking you know so it was kind of that kind of situation at that end of the street and then at the bottom end of the street you know it was much more integrated and like people didn't think that like black people moving in would like lower their property value they'd be like oh yeah whatever it to, to transition back to the, the music thing because I find it Sorry. also interesting. No, 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 because it is fascinating because I think all this stuff shapes the music thing too, like the geography of the city and 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 the makeup of the city. But I think one thing I noticed about the bands that come out of there, and that's why it was interesting finding out that you're from there, is the there's almost a theatricality 
You know, I was talking about with, with to, to Tony from Rambo. Like, uh-huh. if you look at Ruins, you look at Rambo, you look at Ink and Dagger, even look at, like, Jackal and Why Die. Like, the way yeah, there's, like, um, an over-the-top kind of, like, not camp, but, like, sort of, like, this sort of theater to these bands that, like, you know, and it's happening in a very gritty place. Like, it's, it's similar, I guess, to Los Angeles and bands like the Dickies and Manic Hispanic mm-hmm. having these crazy violent shows happening as they're on yeah. stage singing sillier songs, but... It's I've always find it interesting that so many of the Philadelphia bands, even Dead Milkmen, have this sort of like sense of irony to the whole performance thing and incorporate sort of this sort of uh exaggerated performance style to it or costumes even. Yeah, I mean morphines, like I come back to them because like I think they're underrated. They uh their leader is this woman, Elizabeth Fiend, and she played sly guitar. And then she had green armpit hair. I was yeah. like, what? That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and this is like 1987. Like, you know, I'm like a 16 year old kid, like going like, I don't understand what the hell is going on here. But they're really awesome because they were fast and weird. And she dressed all super day glow. And she was also, she's a, a comic book artist, uh, Lunatics, L-U-N-A-T-I-C-K-S. And so she did she was in all the fanzines um from that time you know there there there's certain comic artists that were in all the punk fanzines like ace backwards from california lunatics um brian walsby like brian walsby yeah yeah yeah. um and so it was really so anyway that was a kind of a side thing that was another reason the 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 the, uh that band was awesome because like all their art was really weird and like i think you're right the I never really thought about it, but the theatricality of all those bands, um, you know, made a huge impression on me. And so, like, I've always been of the uh, opinion, like, if they, I'm not really concerned if they love or hate a band I'm in. If they leave with no opinion, um, I've failed, you know? <laughs> yes. Like, that's, yeah. that's my only real metric. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I feel like, I feel like inspiration comes from both swings of the sword you know when you know there's a a positive inspiration but there's also this idea that like if someone rejects what you're doing like you've had that impact you know and maybe that'll inspire them to do something themselves or you know like it's still it's still an effect you know you still affected someone with your art yeah and honestly like a lot of this art comes out of anger so like if you're pissed off at him (laughs) yes (laughs) coming right back at you buddy (laughs) so I, I wanted to find out a little bit about your Connecticut years because I uh, I can't remember where I heard it that you like somehow wind up managing oh the band Force Reality. Yes, I did. Oh my god. Okay, so I had a very short collegiate career. I went to Antioch College in Yellow Springs, Ohio. I, I was there for three months. Um, that was where my first real band played. My first band was this. Uh, uh, I we did for a, a assembly like a talent show at my high school. We played two songs and got cut off, and I got suspended. So, <laughs> what was, were you doing a serial killer circle of shit kind of thing up there? Or what, no, what happened? We, we no, we did a Joy Division cover, um, and then we did covered uh, Subhumans Canada Slave to My Dick. Oh wow, did, that's awesome! And dedicated it to a teacher named Dick. <laughs> we didn't like so the quakers that was 
was a bridge too far for the Quakers. They were like, oh, no. But the great thing is I got suspended, which meant that it was an in-school suspension. So I, they put me in the library for a day. And I'm like, so I don't have to go to class? I just sit here and read? <laughs> this is great. <laughs> You're really not encouraged me to you know, be on the straight and narrow this way. You do know that. Um, but uh, so that was my first band. My second band was this band called Project Y that happened in uh, Yellow Springs, Ohio. We played three shows. And basically in terms of the stage show, it was kind of like all, the two years of the chaos of Blatt's just focused into three shows we had. <laughs> and the reason I'm bringing it up is because Elgin, I knew him as Nathan. Yeah, Nathan. Yeah, absolutely. Elgin James. Yeah. Yeah. Nathan was the skinhead of the band. I was the punk rocker because I had short uh, bleach blonde hair. Uh, our friend Jen Miko was the other singer. She and I were the lead singers. She was really into grunge. She's like, check out this band, Green River. And I'm like, what? <laughs> oh, they sound like Led Zeppelin or whatever. Like, literally. I'm just like, yeah. Oh. Yeah. you know. Which, of course, well, anyway. Um, and then no, it's had- funny you say that because, like, talking to Nate from um foo fighters and but back then diddly squat and brotherhood he said he had the same reaction to nirvana when he heard nirvana he's like oh, it just sounds like led zeppelin like all that grunge stuff yeah. like if you're if yeah. you're a punk rock hardcore kid <laughs> at that time you weren't necessarily going to be into nirvana nah no yeah. no Ab- yeah absolutely not like i mean and some more but like so then jim miko was the the hesher uh, we had this guy uh john who was our bassist he was kind of like the skater kid and then the drummer was this goth guy. So we had like e- each kind of subculture in our band. And so like, we really, you know, so we did um, some originals that uh, we all kind of came up with like Nathan. I think we might've covered a couple of Nathan's songs from his band, Skeletal Ambitions. Oh, which you're was... blowing my fucking mind with this, Jesse. <laughs> this is so fucking crazy. Like, uh, like, holy shit. That's unbelievable. Yeah. You're in a band with them. That's crazy. And yes, yeah, like, I would like, I have them actually written down. Is it skeletal ambitions or skeletal remains? Skeletal ambitions. And skeletal ambitions. That's fucking crazy. Yeah. Like I, yeah. I was just like, when I heard that you had this connection to force reality, I'm like, oh, he's the only other person that's ever brought force reality up, but you guys were in a <laughs> band together. Yeah. And so that's where I knew him from. So like, that's wild. My, my, so we put on one show without a ten bands. We got, um, I was trying to get electric love muffin to come out from Philly. Cause I love them but they didn't work out, but ID under from Chicago came down and played. And so that's why I first met Doug Ward from Chicago. Cause oh, yeah. yeah. So that, that was fun. That's, and so like, we're back, he and I are back in touch after like, you know, 10 or 15 years of being out of touch now, which is awesome. Um, but like, it all came from like these three shows um, in the middle of Shitsville, Ohio. And so I was there for three months and I was just like, I'm a anarchist punk. I've got funny hair. I, I'm not going to be here for very, very long. You know, this is a, a waste of my parents' money. Basically, what was the musical vibe of Project Y? It's called. Yeah, <laughs> there's I there there. I'm pretty sure I have a cassette somewhere. It's every song is different. Like the hardcore punk songs, you know, or like the moshcore songs sound like that. The other ones, like um, the Blatt song "Hustler," I wrote yeah. that for Project Y. So oh, that's where that originally came from. Yeah. Um, and that was about, well, hanging out, playing pool, uh, oddly enough. Um, but like, so we had songs like that. We threw stuff. We, um, got our friends to, um, 
dress up as security, stage security, and punch people during the shows. And then we, like me and Jed Miko, would go around with X's on our hands saying we we're straight edge. And like, and you got to understand, like, Antioch College is like in a tiny town in the middle of Ohio. It's like this lib super liberal progressive oasis in the middle of just a red state area. It's like, like the birthplace of like Antioch rules. Like it's like sort of this, uh, yeah, like it's like a, a, a very important place politically. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. But like the people who were there, like there were definitely freaks and weirdos in the 80s sense. Like there were new waivers, there were punks. There were some people who were industrial. They were like, but there were also like classical geeks and jazz bows. There were a lot of hippies, like a lot of fucking hippies. <laughs> and so like, we just love pulling their hair. Like it was, and so like I have somewhere I have a, a so like the Antioch record, which is the, the local paper, the college paper was like, I don't know if we planted the story or we planted responses in the letters section, but there was like concerns about like this, like straight edge gang <laughs> meeting us, yeah. like, you know, on campus. And like, we were like, we were so, we were so high on whatever. Like, so the fact that they would think that we were actually straight edge yeah. <laughs> is beyond like, imagining because like we were so fucked up but like we would just go around like posing with like x's on our hands like you know crossed arms you know straight edge you know and we oh we covered straight edge revenge by project x which is a great song yes it you is know? a great song this is i i gotta hear this like this is now <laughs> this is incredible this is blown my mind that this Jesus. exists um sorry let me just look uh no okay uh there's a pile of cassette tapes near me which is weird uh but i was thinking maybe there was a copy of that but I, i'm pretty sure i have it somewhere safe um a but anyway so a pre-righteous jams blatz band like there if there's anything screaming for a reissue this has got to come out <laughs> oh boy <laughs> oh <laughs> yeah yeah maybe maybe not um <laughs> I'm, like i'm trying to remember like some of the god I, I haven't thought about the actual songs for a long time but we covered we did a lot of covers we covered the immigrant song, speaking of uh, fucking Led Zeppelin. That was, that was, Jen was like, we got to cover the song. And, but we, you know, we made it fast and punked it up, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's got, it does have a good riff, even if it is Zeppelin. Um, and then, uh, like I said, we did some uh, of uh, Nathan's songs. We did uh, Straight Edge Revenge. I'm straight as the line, just sniff up your nose. I'm as bad as the shit you breathe into your lungs. Wait, you know, I'm as hard as the booze that you sweat on your throat. I'm as bad as the shit you breathe into your lungs. I don't fuck it, but as fast as the pill on your tongue go straight yeah. oh my gosh oh, this is revenge yeah this is a project is it project y letter y or why the word letter y because it was okay. a takeoff on project x is now my oh my gosh yes of <laughs> course how did i miss that this is now my favorite band unheard this is my favorite band ever that is wild i love your enthusiasm i don't know if it'll pay off <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't matter it doesn't matter it's like so a, anyway Marshall McLuhan medium is the message thing. This is much bigger than what the music is actually coming out of this thing. Fair enough. Yeah. Okay. That, 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 that sounds fair. <laughs> so then, uh, so obviously I left Antioch and Nathan was like, I'm in this band called force reality. Do you want to book us a tour? And I'm like, and manage our band. I'm like, yeah, sure. Um, because I had gone back to Philly and then I went to uh, visit Jen Miko and John from the band they had moved to chicago um and so then uh i loved my beautiful mustang broke down immediately upon 
making it all the way to uh, Chicago. A bunch of adventures happened there. I had to work for a living and basically pay. Like I worked a couple different jobs and was finally able to pay enough to fix the damn car. Um, and I left, went from Chicago, probably down to Philly, then over to Connecticut. Um, it was there's still snow on the ground because of Chicago in like April. <laughs> so I got a place in uh, New Haven, Connecticut, armpit. Wait, before sorry, before you leave Chicago, did you take in any of the stuff? Like, were you working too much, or did you take in any of the punk stuff happening in Chicago? That oh yeah, well I I had been to Chicago uh, in '88, and that's the first time I saw Screeching Weasel. They played mm -hmm. a, a thing called Peace Fest, which was a uh, an outdoor festival of some sort on the on the lake. Because um, so what I, probably younger people in the scene don't understand is at the time there was this in political punks uh in the u.s you would there was this uh circuit you there were like every summer there'd be an anarchist festival somewhere like there's one in toronto uh, i went out to uh i moved out to berkeley uh in time for the san francisco anarchist festival in 89 uh there was so there was the anarchist festivals every year there was the democratic and republican conventions uh every couple of years um and then there was something called the rainbow family the rainbow gathering rainbow gathering god a bunch of fucking hippies but a lot of fucking drugs um <laughs> yeah i mean yeah mostly hippies but there was a lot of drugs uh and so it was never boring um so and so you would get you would travel from place to place to place and like maybe there'd be a festival or there'd be a tour that you knew about and this is all pre-internet so it was really difficult to piece piece together but you know, you were young and you ended up doing weird shit that you look back like on in 88, I was coming back. So I met people, they went down to, I, I think the Democratic uh, uh, convention was, I think, Atlanta, wherever it was in 88. I think it was in the South. I'm not 100% sure. But I met, I told people I would meet them in Chicago in the summer of 88. So I went up there and met them there. And then um, I, maybe that's where I first met Doug Ward and ID Under. But I saw a bunch of bands, um, Dead Steel Mill and Screeching Weasel. They both played that um, outdoor festival. And then I was like hanging out on, I think, Belmont. That's the street, right? In Chicago? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. The hip street. Hip yeah. Street. So like I would like, you know, hang out there all day and like look at the record stores and like, you know, whatever. Um, and then I was staying in a squat called the Hell House at 666 Illinois, in, uh, which I think is still there. Uh, it was last time I was in town. Uh, I mean, it's been redone. It's not a squat anymore, but um, that would be pretty crazy if it was. But um, then my friends met us, met me, and we all kind of hung out. And then we moved as a pack. We ended up on the Lower East Side in 88, and we're staying at Sea Squat. Somewhere on it, one of the squats on Avenue C. I don't, I don't know which one, um, or not Avenue C. Um, one of the cross, one of the number streets, um, and the Thompson Square Park riots happened. So I happened happen to be in town for that. Which, looking back, was crazy at the time. It, it, I wasn't a fan of getting, you know, hit by cops. <laughs> I mean, nobody is. <laughs> no, <laughs> you know it's but i mean but the experience is pretty intense and like it fell right into where i was politically in terms of like you know whose park our park get the fuck out you you know fucking murderers and this is like you know before 
a lot of that stuff was even like videotaped. This is before Rodney King was videotaped. So like we knew they were bad and we knew that they were brutal. We didn't, we saw how brutal they were, but it wasn't as well known um, in, at least not in like white or mainstream white circles. That makes sense. Like, mm -hmm. like anyway, I'm not going to get diverted down that track, but basically I just wanted to say that there was like this, um, that was why I was in Chicago because there was a circuit and then a year later I went to visit and then got stuck there. Did you see like, was that before or after? Cause there's that famous series of shows where like Reagan youth breakdown, they all play Thompson square park. I was saw that. I saw Sorry. Reagan youth and Dossier there. Oh, you did. So oh, that video is yeah. incredible. I was watching that the other day. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. They were great. Um, that was the first time I saw nausea and I was just like, Holy fuck. Like she has a fucking voice. Yeah. 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 What about group of individuals? Because they they seem very political from their records. From yeah, God, that's that's right. They um, I never saw them live, but I bought their seven inch in Philly. Like I'm pretty sure I bought their single from Wooden Shoe Bookstore, which was the anarchist bookstore, and uh, I still have it. Uh, I forget. I I had two seven inches. Uh, they did that song World Civil War. World Civil World Civil War. World Civil War. I think I've got them? like three records. I think so. Cause I've got three or four records by them and they're all killer, but I know the first one's got sort of like a bunch of anarchist stuff. There might be something about the haymaker, uh, haymarket riot yeah. and stuff. That on sounds it. familiar. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's like white with black ink on it. I yeah, think. exactly. Yeah. I think print yeah. right on the dust sleeve even and stuff. It's like, yeah. Oh, that's so wild. Like, that's the thing. It's like, you've got such a varied punk experience from this time because this is still when scenes had really distinct regional identities. So like the, punk stuff that's happening but i guess maybe the political side of things was more of a universality right oh absolutely like that's when why we need we, we people like uh you know michael graves or uh uh that douchebag uh from proud boys say like oh punk oh, gavin mcginnis yeah, yeah says punk is conservative I'm like it never has been and yeah. you never were so go fuck yourself <laughs> yeah, exactly. you know um i mean hard stop like people are like well and i'm like no oh no like it was always like progressive leftist and or anarchist or nihilist, but it was definitely not what jurist. Yeah. Not, <laughs> Whatever not you're pro, doing. Pro yeah. right wing government. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't pro cop. Like, you know, yeah. like people are like, Oh, well, you know, NTPC. And I'm like, you do know, know that Jesse Helms doesn't like the mentors. Right. Yeah. Like, you know, that Jesse Helms, would not be a fan of the dwarves, you know. Uh yeah. you know, it's just it's just so it's it's so facile and kind of disappointing when people fall into such sim simple um uh uh tales that they tell themselves. Anyway. Yeah. So Nathan, it, I'm, I'm sorry for tensions. No, 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 no. That's like no, I will like I think it's important to talk about that stuff because there is a lot of historical revisionism that goes on with these, well, I guess all over punk, you know, and I'm sure I'm guilty of it, hopefully in a more positive way at times, but, <laughs> um, but at the same time, like for these people to try and claim that it's one thing when even their punk history, they know it wasn't ever that like yeah. Gavin McGinnis played in like some weird anarchist punk band in Ottawa back in the day. And like, they were playing with people that are still, left wing and still involved in like legit cool politics and stuff. So he can't front like it was ever not that yeah. for him growing up. Yeah. Yeah. 
yeah, I mean, the, the, the whole idea is, it's just like, it, it, it's part and parcel of our, at least North America, somewhat over here in UK, but mostly North America, like the willingness to uh, just dive into fantasy thinking, you know, or just like the, the things that you think are just so fantastical in the, in the sense of fantastical as in fantasy, like complete and utter fantasy. Like it was never like that hard stop. You look at everybody from dead Kennedys to black flag to DOA, you know, um, coming over here to all the bands here, you know, God save the queen is not a pro monarchy song, (laughs) you know, uh, it's just, it's so insane. People like, Oh, well, Johnny Ramone. It's like, yeah, he, he's not a fucking, you know, like that's one guy, you know, and he was balanced by Joey. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And like, and like, even even he was fucking really offended by Reagan going to, uh, uh, the Nazis, uh, the, the, the cemetery in Pittsburgh, uh, where he went to the Nazi graves, you know, I mean, yeah, no, he, he, I think Johnny's, I think Johnny's politics are, are ultimately a lot of it was just him being kind of a reactionary asshole, which doesn't change the fact that it was what he, you know, said and, and things (laughs) like that. But I think for people to try and pretend like, you know, or, or to put him in one world when, you know, I, I met him years later and stuff like that. And he was curmudgeonly and stuff like that, but it was not like talking to some right-wing asshole keeps bringing up racist shit or keeps saying, oh, like, yeah, never came up. Like it was never something that he was like per- putting out there in the world. It, like right. maybe if you were with him in a bar, it would have been different. But in my experience with him, like for the three hours, four hours that we hung out that day when I was 17, he didn't say anything yeah. sketchy. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I I met him and hung out with him um, many, many years later, like the 95 tour with the, the Lollapalooza that was basically a Metallica show with like cool openers. <laughs> yeah, White Zombies, oh no, White Zombies are last tours, you're right, but it was like... Uh, Rancid and Ramones were the Rancid openers. Ramones, that's it, yeah. yeah. And, and Soundgarden too, but... And I think Violent Femmes, because they had a rotating surprise slot that year too, mm-hmm. and it was Violent Femmes in Toronto. Oh, really? But, oh, awesome them and the Ramones had to switch slots. And so they came out to a pretty negative reaction when people were expecting the Ramones to come out. <laughs> that, I love that, that band yeah. though. So yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Um, well, that one record is great. I, I've never listened to anything besides the first Violent Fence record. So they have an Australian only record that only came out in Australia for some mm-hmm. reason called rocks. And that has f- their four, like four of my favorite songs by them ever. And I love that first record, but they, it's just wild how good these songs are. And it never came out anywhere, but Australia. Oh, weird. Okay. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's interesting. Like you must've been, you know, you mentioned youth of today, you know, and, and then you're going to see Reagan youth and you're also seeing bands like groups of individuals. So there is this sort of, diversity of of sound certainly and and certainly thought i guess with the straight edge thing and stuff like that that you know i'm i'm always interested by the fact that like in the gilman it seems like everyone kind of coexists in that first kind of era of the gilman Uh, whereas it seems like on the east coast it's a little more kind of separated and divided Mm -hmm. absolutely i think i mean at gilman like that's where i first saw the dwarfs yeah you know when they would play like you know eight minutes if you're lucky (laughs) (laughs) you know and then they would end with like throwing all their shit at the fucking crowd uh you know but like they would play and l7 spit boy 
Fugazi, and then like serial killers played there actually uh probably on their one and only tour <laughs> um yeah i mean it's really uh they gilman was like definitely the people there have almost always had a really strong sense of humor um and especially when you're coming out of the 70s and 80s uh you have people like timmy ohannon and people who just you know are into things like people like uh, jeff bale who are like you know it's if it doesn't rock it's it doesn't matter what it is if it doesn't rock it's not worth it and so like that's where you get bands like that weren't so cool uh about different issues but then you would have like the dwarves and you would have uh pansy division and you would have tribe eight and you would have you know a lot of different kinds of bands but we were all in the same scene. It was all small enough where like everybody more or less knew each other. And even mm -hmm. when things got big after Green Day broke and as Rancid was getting, was blowing up and Offspring had blown up, like it was still very much like once you found the scene, you were welcomed. And then, you know, then things like, you know, bands like Ink and Dagger from Philly, like they had a huge influence, like that kind of like kind of more spooky kind of post-punk gothy thing with like makeup and like you know well you know like style like uh brady from criminals he did black cat music which is a perfect example of that kind of thing you know like that had a huge influence that was later on but i don't know i think you're talking about scenes that maybe because they were smaller there was more room for people to do weird stuff and so it wasn't so easy just to get away with like picking a small piece of the going fashion and just exploiting that light little piece and making you had this whole like you were going against people who had this whole wide array of uh uh songs and outlooks and performances so you had to make it you know you had to really really do well because you were being judged by people who didn't care about that tiny little sliver of the emo scene or the hardcore scene or the straight edge scene or whatever they were like I'm going to go see the dwarves after this. So you better be good. <laughs> better be yeah, entertaining. Like, I think that's all like, I think that's really reflected by the first, certainly the first few years of lookout releases where you have yeah, like, what does that label sound like? Like, you know, epitaph, yeah. there's like a sound at a certain point. And I guess yeah. maybe at lookout at a certain point, maybe there, you could argue there's a sound, but. Oh yeah. It, it feels so much, but it feels like different than fat. It feels different than touch and go and discord. Like, yeah. You know, like Crimshrine does not sound like neurosis. And no. when you get there, like, is it already kind of like, is it Gilman's already kind of going for what, two years before or year before it starts 87? Yeah. yeah. They started, uh, it was the, uh, Kamala and, uh, the guy who did Alchemy Records. I forget his name. I know uh, he just came up on the show. Jerry A was talking about how they shook him down at rough trade in San yeah. Francisco <laughs> the other day. It's awesome. <laughs> he says he really feels bad about it now, but he said that the, but that label too, like look at the roster of that label Yeah, in terms of like Clown Alley, uh, Melvin's, uh, Neurosis, and, yeah. and Poison Idea, like yeah. four giant virulence too, Fu Manchu, like it becomes like, it's like all these incredible bands. Was Tales of Terror... No, Tales of Terror was on CD Presents. Yeah, the, unfortunately, okay, they, they were yeah. on the shady, the shadier, the shadiest of them all, I think, CD yeah. Presents. Yeah, Dave Ferguson. Yeah, he's dead. Uh, anyway, um, 
Yeah, so uh, Kamala and that guy found Gilman in 86, and then they basically joined forces with Yohannan, and the first show was the 31st of December, 1986. So yeah, so, so basically yeah. 1987. <laughs> yeah. So by the time um, you get down there, is it already kind of an established place with like, cause I, I've, you hear from some people that it, it almost, and I think it's even in the book, give me something better um, mm -hmm. where they talk about how it eventually became a scene unto itself. And you certainly see that, you know, in the, the, the legend and the lore, but yeah. was that already happening by the time you get there? Yeah. In fact, they had already shut down once okay. and reopened. <laughs> so that was uh, because basically all the maximum rule people got burnt out. And so Johan was like, we're closing. And then, uh, Marshall Stacks, who's later in Blatz and Subincision, and then Jonathan Dellinger, who um, is, I think, still a scientist at Lawrence Berkeley Livermore Labs. Uh, Michael Deal, uh, who ran the uh, Berkeley Free Clinic volunteer program. Um, and I think Lou Everett, they're the ones who, oh, I mean, Pat Riot, uh, who kind of was a fix-it kind of guy who also was at KLX in Berkeley, uh, they reopened it. They were like, we're not going to let this die. And so they brought in new volunteers and then just basically kept it going. And then, um, so that was, I want to say 88, but I got there in late June of 89. So I had left Connecticut, gone back to Philly, and then somehow arranged because of that circuit I was talking about of the different events. I was like, well, the San Francisco anarchist gathering is in late june i'm going to go to that move all my stuff out there and then i'm going to join an art magazine okay so that was my plan and so me and two friends one of whom was from i had gone to school at antioch uh kind of a gothy kind of guy we uh packed up all my stuff into my G masa glc which for your listeners is a tiny hatchback <laughs> yeah. and the three of us in it and all my crap not I a Mustang. Not a Mustang. No, that was a GLC. Great little car. Yeah. Uh, they, uh, we, we, we did it in three days. We just didn't stop driving. We just switched drivers, and wow. just did, just deadheaded it across the <laughs> yeah the, the country. Um, but yeah, but by the time I got there, I mean it was definitely very much a scene, and you know, like the rules were painted on the door and stuff, uh, and there was membership cards. Like I think it was always a scene, from my impression. Like it just kind of naturally gra gravitated from New Method and uh, uh, the farm in San Francisco over to Gilman because like you could still go to the Omni and to the Stone, the two big pay to play clubs in the Bay Area. Um, well, in Oakland and San Francisco respectively, and you could get beat up by bouncers and see bad metal, those shows if you wanted to. Yeah. Um, and then like, and then, then the big punk, Bands would play at this Omni in the Stone because you get paid. So, like, I saw Bad Brains there, um, Biohazard and Sick of It All uh, were there. Um, I mean, Sick of It All played Gilman, probably well, the tour before, famously. The highly collectible seven inch, the Gilman Street edition of the first seven inch. Oh, really? Yeah, it's got a different cover and a stamp uh, on the inside. <laughs> really? Yeah. Oh, man. I mean, that was it. I, I, I did miss Slapshot playing at Gilman and getting pissed off, but I did see that Sick of It All show. And I think my recollection differs a bit, but I understand why they were unhappy. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, um, 
I don't know. It's obviously such a, a cool place. Like I don't get there. I think the first time I get there is like 99. And so okay. it's after the explosion. Sure. But like you're saying, there was still like a scene and it was still, I met Sammy the Mick from Rest yeah. in Peace All Bets Off, like out yeah. front. And he just like, hey man, how's it going? Where are you from? And just like immediately felt welcomed by this place. Like there's no other place like it. And playing there, there's no other place that I've ever played that kind of had that same sort of, uh, that sense of history. And, and it's wild that it survives because I think we played there four times, five times, three mm -hmm. of them ended in or had venue clearing brawls break out and it's thrown on the street yeah like it, and <laughs> not because of us just like because of stuff happening and then so you hear about that you hear about uh well obviously the terrible shit that happened with jello there you hear yeah. about um oh the, the the baby corpse being yeah. found there like <laughs> <laughs> like it's such a it's i know it's such a it's such a crazy i love that story how does this place survive like it's so yeah. amazing that it does <laughs> i think part of it is because like there's always a new generation of uh kids who may or may not be actually under 18 uh some are some aren't but like they bring a fresh perspective and so you know when you're young like every day stretches out and like if you're like a teenager like i found when i was squatting like my t my months of living in a squat are like this drawn out thing every day was like 15 16 different adventures and then like today i'm like oh christ i gotta hurry up and like get ready for this podcast interview i'm doing like <laughs> like t time just like whips away but like i think gilman is always run by people who have just gotten into it a lot of times or still have that sense of like an elongation of time so they're like Oh, well, you know, okay, it makes sense that like, you know, uh, there's like a dead baby in the sound loft. Uh, we'll just, you know, take care of it and make sure that it goes away. And then we'll just keep going and we won't worry about it. We, you know, we'll just, you know, okay, well, there's the end saints and there's, you know, uh, uh, Marion from the end saints and she's now she's got a banana upper cooch. Uh, okay, well, you know, oh, and the, the original drummer, Dick Kennedy's, uh, who is now a Christian, hardcore Christian. And was in love with her and has gotten jealous and now called the cops and so now they're here oh okay uh, you know like whatever it is like i think the fact that people are always like there's always a new crop of people of whatever age kids of whatever age to really deal with that stuff like it it doesn't get old like it, it was the same crew doing it they would have just like been like we're done <laughs> yeah stick a fork in us like Two and a half decades ago <laughs> yeah you need that youthful energy to yeah. deal with all the bullshit yeah you really do and you know and then also to reflect whatever the current uh uh trends in underground music and culture are um and so like you know we're talked about we talked about a couple bands that you know yeah it was the 80s that's what they're called xyz you know yeah. it's like yeah like you know some of some of my uh cohorts and uh, uh collaboratives and past have been like oh you know you know i couldn't do xyz now it's like no but you did it then mm. and you had a great time doing it now it's a different time it's like yeah you know like i don't mind that because i did it we created art or music or culture or a book or this or that and it was what it was a lot of it was awesome some of it didn't work um 
and some of it's still totally worth listening. Like I, like I said, like I love the serial killers. Like I know that record, the full length record by heart, you know. And I'm like, God, I can't sing this record out loud, you know. No, I'm a, definitely not. <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Gigi Allen, you know. Like I've always loved. Uh, I mean, for him, it wasn't just the transgression, but for for me, Gigi was the taking performance to its absolute limit, and he did not do that because he did not kill himself on stage. Um, but that is the limit. Like, but he, like, you know, like you read about like, oh, you know, well, Iggy and the Stooges, you know, he covered himself in peanut butter. I'm like, okay. Like, yeah, I mean, that was a big deal in 1967 or 69, whenever that was fine. But, you know, like I, even like in 1989, when, you know, Blatz, when I joined Blatz, I mean, I was taking shit a lot further than Iggy ever thought to, you know, and I'm just some snot nosed jerk from Philadelphia, you know, <laughs> who just got into town. So like, I, I think, I think you, you have to think about like to my friends who complain about that kind of thing. Like, it's like our, how we grew up is different from how kids now are growing up and how society is looking at things like, and culturally it's like, yeah, you know what? Like, you know, we had, things were very different. Like you can even look at punk rock, you can look at, uh, you know, songs by Avengers and uh, X and Dead Kennedys with like racial slurs in them, mm. you know, mm -hmm. or Patti Smith famously. Yeah. Or, <laughs> you or, know? The, or the Dicks or. Yeah. You know, there's a yeah. sort of, yeah. Like it's like you're saying, like to me, if it didn't evolve, then it would just be like one of those dead cultures that people just go and like, yeah. you know, dress up and cosplay. Like it's still around and still relevant. Like it needs to evolve. The yeah. Hippies are exactly <laughs> what you're talking about. They or like not swing music been... too, right? Like there's so yeah. much stuff where it's just yeah. like putting on a costume and pretending like it was. Yeah. And that doesn't, I mean, I mean, yeah, sure. I, I did like the retro explosion of the nineties and, you know, I definitely have some, you know, Brian Setzer orchestra and, uh, you know, important uh, heat records in my collection. Absolutely. Well, that's a Philadelphia but, because of bloodless Pharaohs and Brian Setzer being a Philadelphia guy, you know, it's in your, it's in your blood. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. You brought it all back. Good God. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's like, um, it's, it's amazing. Kind of like when you think about, Oh, it's funny. Margaret Cho was on the podcast and she talked about how, Gigi Allen is one of America's greatest artists of all time, which I don't know if I'd take yes. it that far, but like the idea that he, he was the guy that, like you're saying, established the limit and yeah. like, this is the taste line. And obviously there are victims involved because he did really He's an awful people. person, awful, yeah. awful person. No. Yeah. But he, but I, I am somebody, I said this before. Um, I'm somebody who can separate the excellent art from awful artists um and i mean there's always there are always limits and Gigi at times has definitely pushed those limits for me or grazed those limits but like he's somebody who's a perfect example like he was violent at least to at least one woman who he set on fire uh he talked about all kinds of effed up stuff um he did a lot of effed up stuff but like he also like margaret says like he pushed performance forward basically to the limit and he, 
you know, I mean, it's, it's always going to be a question like, would he have actually done it? Um, I think so. Like, I don't, don't think he was a particularly happy person, but I, I don't really know. Um, but I'm glad to hear her say, say that. Cause like, that's like, sometimes I say that kind of stuff and people look at me like I'm, you know, on crack and I'm like, no, you don't understand. Like what he was doing was the epitome. He, he was the end result for all this performance and um, anger and frustration and uh, tastelessness and, you know, uh, 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 you know, like uh, uh, lighting sacred cows on fire. Like it all goes towards where he was going, you know? Um, and, you know, that's why I like listening to the best show with Tom Sharpling and John Worcester, you know, they're always, you know, dropping Gigi Allen things into their, uh, their bits, because I think, I don't know why, but I think because it's their fans probably in some mm. weird way, I'm sure Tom Sharpling is probably like, oh, I would never be a fan, but like, he probably knows like half of his records. Cause he's one of those guys that is one of those people that, um, just had such an indelible impact on certainly people that were involved in this culture. Like even if you, obviously if you experienced it, I'm sure in a very different way, but even if you didn't experience it, like knowing that this thing had happened and like mm -hmm. the line has been drawn and, you know, and it also it's, it's, you know, like it's interesting because you can situate them in the punk world. You can situate them in like sort of like the Confederate Confederacy of scum world. But at the same yeah. time, he's also with like Annie Sprinkle and like, performance art he's like part yeah. of this whole kind of like high art world and being taken in by these people because like you're saying this is this is the 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 end game of like performance art like this is right up there kember fowler uh mm -hmm. her, her sewing circle her piece sewing circle i think is ultimately the end game as well like i think there's like once getting into punk and knowing that these things had happened you're like okay we can go far and we don't have to yeah. go that far but we can go yeah. far and not to say that her art is the equivalent of gg allen's art because i think her art is a lot more relevant to to people's struggles and things like that than maybe right. gg is but i think they're both yeah yeah like they're both impactful and then like lisa Suckdog. yes speaking of similar uh artists and performers yeah i mean there's there's definitely a like a handful of people out there who kind of took it and ran with it but like you also see like you read about like the bands that backed up Gigi. You have like people from like various like uh who like I know uh there was a Jay Mascus, Thurston Jay Moore. Mascus, Thurston Moore, like Sonic Youth and Dinosaur Jr. and the MC5 yeah. all backing up this wacko. Didi Ramon, just, right? Didi Ramon joins yeah. the band for like what two weeks they say in the documentary. Yeah. Like it's really, you know, there, there's a reason for that. And um I, I'm I'm glad I don't know if he'll ever, I don't need, know that he even needs to be rehabilitated at all. Like, I, I think he would be aghast at that, frankly. <laughs> I, mean, I think he's got like, it's it's like you're saying, it's so conflicted, the legacy, and it, it's so rot that it exists perfectly in the space it exists, I think, where yeah. it you know yeah. it's there and you can engage with it if you want, but it's yeah. now <laughs> safely distanced. But it's it's what like you know like you watch hayden you're like wow that's the hangover that's like all this stuff comes out of this movie it's also like which brought me back to the Gil gilman like you've got margaret cho michael frenty uh stephen malcolmus fat mike 
like obviously all the, yeah. the green day stuff like all these things all these people are in this room and like and not like unit pride and like all these like incredible like there's all these cool people that would wind up doing weird wild things inspiring people around the world and like you're saying it's relatively speaking a small place you know yeah. like these bands are all playing together yeah i mean one of my favorite uh stories is you have this guy named trevor peglin p-e-g-l-e-n who um at least last time i checked he was getting larger and larger kind of in the art world because he was doing a lot of exposure of um of uh super secret um uh projects and he was doing a lot of work on conspiracies but then real conspiracy well conspiracies that actually had elements of truth and like one of the things he did is he did this whole exhibit exhibition of patches from places like area 51 from uh, what's grooms lake air force base or whatever it's called where they have like all these top secret you know air force uh, military projects. testing stuff yeah yeah and then like you know spy satellite uh patches because like all all the different uh organizations in the military have their own stylized patches that they wear and so like it's this book of like just hundreds of these like super secret uh military organizations patches from the u.s and that's awesome yeah. And so like, and then last I, I read about up about him, I should probably go look him up after this uh, to find out what he's up to now. But like he was doing like all of these, he was over in uh, over here in Europe doing uh, more stuff about kind of surveillance and then like kind of like long distance uh, photography. But he was uh, the head coordinator at Gilman for a while. And he's also in um, some kind of noise band called Noisegate. That's what they were called. But he was like, there's two guys in that band. And like, I don't know that they were well liked, but they played some weird shows. And so people were like, oh, that's interesting. But, you know, but like, you know, and he's not even like a Marco Cho, you know, he, yeah. he, but, but I, I think people don't understand how deep, like you say, like, that's a small room, but a lot of people have gone through that room. And I, I kind of broaden that to say like punk rock in the eighties and nineties was a small room, but then like, we're all like, in our 40s 50s and 60s and we're kind of like you know we're choosing shit for like advertisings for advertisements and like you know like it's weird because you hear like it was a big deal to hear the ramones on an ad not anymore no. you know <laughs> no, now it's or in a movie yeah, oh no not anymore so a lot of cars now the ramones yeah they have but like <laughs> you know um but 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 it, it's true that like that this scene, I think in part because it was so creative, has really put its tentacles across, like, you know, like uh, at least Western culture. Mm -hmm. um, I, I can't speak for other cultures, but definitely Western culture. Like, it's like the tentacles have gone very, very far, and they all are alternative tentacles. Well, I would say that it is. I could say it's beyond Western culture. Like, I, last night I talked to Aryan, who... Uh, uh, plays in this band, sings in the band Serengay, who might be probably arguably the biggest hardcore band in the world. They're from Indonesia and uh -huh. ginormous, you know, and, uh, you know, he was talking about like ska punk bands over there and that's, that's Operation Ivy, right? Like yeah. that's yeah. that the reach of, you know, and obviously Green Days gets bigger than that. And certainly, Rancid. you know, like Rancid and stuff was, and I'm sure like, I was just actually thinking about when you brought up weird noise projects, Faxhead or, uh zip code rapist or any of neil hamburgers old bands play they must have played there because he's from that scene Z zip code rapist played yeah i remember yeah. seeing them and liking them so much i bought their record yeah uh, <laughs> and I, I i don't 
often listen to it, but I still have it. Yeah, I still have it too. It's one of those ones that I'm like, ah, I'm, I'm, it's nice to know it's there if their mood ever does strike. But yeah, yeah, uh, you know, but he, you know, through Neil Hamburger, he's had like a huge influence. But once again, like it's this sort of permission to play that comes with punk, especially knowing that there's like a venue like the Gilman that you can have access to like you don't obviously when you maybe it got harder to get gigs there but like still any band could play there like brace yeah. belzen from um a true and on podcast you know like that's where he got started like like there's still like this sort of uh on-ramp for people that comes from that place no absolutely uh, just just so it's clear like it has always been difficult to get booked there like anywhere there's a venue there are a ton of garage bands that suck yeah <laughs> um i can tell you that from when i was head booker in uh probably 90 to 92 um we had so many bands that weren't very good but we would try to get them on at least one show so like you see like these crazy lineups where like the top four bands are like known bands and there's like some random name at the bottom <laughs> it's like <laughs> oh they were probably uh you know and like some of those some of those would be shows with like Fugazi, you know, yeah. or somebody, you know, um, it, 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 it was really, uh, but it was always very difficult. I do recognize that after Green Day hit and kids decoded them not talking about Gilman and realizing what Gilman was, which is basically what happened. Um, once that happened and there was a huge influx of bands and then it got really difficult um, to get in there. But I mean, but it was like, it was still run the same way. I mean, it's still booked the same way. Like, you know, I think today it's still booked the same way as far as I can tell. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, one thing I wanted to ask you about, cause I found this when I was talking to Larry Livermore that I found and other people I talked to from the Bay is it's really interesting is like the, the seismic shift that kind of happens in music with Nirvana for seemingly everywhere else in the world didn't seem as relevant to what was happening in the Bay area. Like Larry Livermore said, faith, no more is more than nirvana for the bay that's i think it's a very good observation um yeah they they i mean there were always a lot of grunge fans but there weren't that many grunge bands from the bay i think partly because like a lot of the over 21 bands in san francisco because it was definitely a separate scene were much more kind of like punk rock and roll bands um, so like bands like the Stitches from LA did really well there. New Bomb Turks would always do really well there. The Dwarves kind of straddled both them. There's this band called the Gargoyles, uh, who were a total rock and roll band, sorry, punk rock and roll band, uh, who also straddled both Gilman and San Francisco bar scenes. Um, but that stuff was so ingrained into the San Francisco older punk cu culture that I don't think there was a, a lot of room for grunge to get a, a foothold really. Mm -hmm. um besides all that stuff was happening elsewhere anyway like and i think um there's always a lot of like kind of college rock indie rock stuff uh so i think people were either going to go fast and loud or metal because obviously metal is huge and still is huge in the bay and like had all the crossover stuff coming from the bay like exodus and testament um you know there's so much stuff going on um and then all of the gilman stuff all the political hardcore all the emo hardcore as in emo like fugazi not emo like whatever um it is nowadays um but so and you had san diego bands always coming up uh you know like ebullition bands coming up 
and then so there was so much stuff going on i don't know that there was like i said room for this really musically not as interesting uh genre sub sorry sub genre to get much traction you know like you could go and see the fluid or mud honey or nirvana or whomever they would play all the time on tour so you, you could get your grunge fix yeah <laughs> but, but it wasn't like there was I, yeah i mean i think so there was so much art and you had um all the homocore stuff kind of really coming up with like homocore magazine and then like obviously pan's division and then very soon afterwards uh tribate you had bands like um oh tip my brain uh the uh not the homobiles that's current band or recent band um all the homocore there was a dance night at like the crystal pistol and which is was a one of many gay bars in san francisco go figure uh and they um oh there was a band that was associated with it it was more like one guy and he was uh, he came up with pansy division and Tom oh john Jennings. is it john for pansy division or no not not john Ginoli, but um there's tom jennings from homocore there was um obviously lynn breedlove and uh all the tribate Tribe, yeah. Um anyway, but there's just so much stuff. And then you have Riot Girl happening just in north of us in Olympia, Washington, which is a fair piece away, but it, it wasn't that far away. And it was very much part and parcel of Gilman. Uh that scene in Oakland and Sacramento all had very strong Riot Girl um scenes. And you know, you had like Tiger Trap and Heavens to Betsy and uh uh well eventually uh of course uh Sleater Kinney. Especially like you know, looking at nineteen ninety one, the year Nirvana happens, like like Operation Ivy were contemporaries with Nirvana, like temporary contemporaries with Nirvana, like happening at the same time as Nirvana's getting going. So it's not like the scene needed Nirvana in the same way mainstream music right. needed Nirvana to happen. No, yeah. I mean in nineteen ninety, I would say my two favorite records was probably the dwarves blood guts and pussy and l7 smell the magic those are two defining records um and totally different you know but they both played gilman and they both were you know california bands you know and I, honestly like l7 was probably grunge i guess like well and the melvins are are down there yeah. and are like a local band at this point almost and it's like they are yeah. a local band so they are they're like the, the inventors of the sound. Yeah, but they're not as Led Zeppelin. Like, no, I, I remember seeing them when they were just slow and it was just like, Doom. check your watch. <laughs> Doom. Then you could, you know, go make a cup of coffee, come back. Doom. You know, I'm like, it was just insane, like how slow and restrained they were. They were like, if Neurosis was even more restrained as a band, that was Melvin's when they were doing like Ozma. And like that kind of stuff. It was really like, and to me, that's the most interesting Melvin's era because it's just, it's so different. I think they're so interesting the whole way through because there's just sort of like, like you're saying, the singularity of vision. Buzz and Dale are going to play as slow as they want to play, or they're going to play as kooky as they want to play. They're going to do whatever they want to do because this is their expression, like, right. as artists. And it's, yeah, like I, I am. 
obviously a, a fan the whole way through but you know it's so cool that like here's this band that you know inspires all this stuff up north and then comes down to san francisco and they're one of the first bands on slap a ham yeah yeah <laughs> yeah oh that's all yeah all the slap a ham stuff and like all the grindcore and like crustcore that just like i mean they built on you know whomever from over here you know you're uh, discharged your KSU caves and your amoebixes uh, and you know extreme noise terrors and just that just explodes like the slap ham fiesta grandes were like we knew at gilman like those would be shows filled with just awful 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 people but we also knew that it would be like sold out and like you know all these crazy bands would pay, play and like phobia would come up from connecticut and like man is a bastard and you know all these bands would spaz and you know Personally, not really my thing, but like we knew it was a thing. We knew it was worth supporting. But again, like nothing grunge about it. No, you're fine. No, like it, it's kind of hard to like, you know, rock out to, to Led Zeppelin inspired music once you've heard no comment. Yeah. You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah. So anyway, what, um, like, you know, you, you brought up the, not necessarily being you know as much of your thing the sort of the power violence stuff that's happening back then but it does feel like you know like you would have seen all these bands play right like they would have been like it's just part of the ecosystem that you're all taking yeah. in everything in, in the gilman oh yeah no definitely and like and we were you know like we were all in bands and so like you know the criminals grups lats like well lats didn't really i don't know if we played with I don't think power of violence was the thing when blast was around but like well no comment would have been playing right and like um that kind of wave of bands like that's 91 isn't it well capitalist casualties we played with cap casualty yeah yeah that, yeah because yeah i have the cap casualties live from the gilman seven inch and in uh -huh. one of the songs they stop the song and they're like we got you guys in for free and now you're fucking shit up like <laughs> what the fuck and then i saw them live actually at the drive-in play before them <laughs> years later at the gilman and they had to stop the song and say word for word the same thing to the kids <laughs> they brought to the show. Yeah. I mean, they were, and then like people like Athena, who was later in the dread, like, you know, she was half of, uh, uh, what, 625? Wait, no. Six what, weeks. She, six weeks. Thank you. I knew it was a six in there. Um, and obviously, like, she was like, you know, part of Vote Sick and like kind of like, you know, that whole scene. And so, like, they, they were all part of, the scene and like um you know capital casualties like we played with them a bunch um blats did grups did criminals did um we were never on a lot of my bands were never on a lot of those like super heavy shows or shows that were super heavy with power violence um because we didn't really fit but we i'm sure we've played with man is a bastard probably some band i mean i don't know yeah you're, you're around long enough you're gonna play with most people <laughs> <laughs> but yeah but, like, but, 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 but it, it is just all one big scene like i mean every once in a while it goes through um cycles of like things get scenes get separated out and then they all come back to kind of come back together just like this ebb and flow of cross currents and i think now with um how people listen to music and this is a bit of a tangent so but there, there's a point that i swear um i think we're in a, a situation where things are really flowing together again like uh i just went to, to see that band zulu from La los angeles play they just mm -hmm. played nottingham like a couple days ago and opening were a bunch of hip-hop bands from 
the East Coast of the U.S. You know, and so then afterwards, after that, th those bands played, then Zulu played like you know, super heavy death metal, you know, kind of vocals, and it was the same crowd. Yeah, you know, and it didn't matter, and that was super awesome to see, and kind of like a indication of you know how things are really getting mixed up because digitally you don't you, like you experience music digitally now and you don't have to wait until that seven inch comes in as an import to hear that band you just type in the name or you just follow the suggestion from an algorithm and then all of a sudden you're you know your mind is blown um or, or you're like, you know, you hear some kid talking about some artist and you don't have to try and figure out where you could hear this now. You just look yeah. up that artist and it's like a completely different genre. Yeah. You know, like I, I find my son coming home and he's like telling me about stuff like, oh, my friend listened to this type of music called funk. And I'm like, okay, what's, what's that? Like, and he plays it for me and I'm like, I've never heard of this. That's wild. But like <laughs> you have access to it now and you're right. Like it changes, it changes what you're going to put out because the input is different now going in. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And, and you have like, yeah, it's, it's really, uh, I, I think it's pretty cool. Um, I, I know that I, I, it's kind of like with like the cultural stuff, like I recognize like me asking my buddy in study hall for a cassette tape of the dead milkman is not going to happen anymore, but it happened to me and I'm stoked that it happened and it made me kind of what I am today in a lot of ways, but like people are getting to where I'm at or where or they will be where i'm at a different route as long as they get there and you know continue to like question and to push themselves and push the boundaries of the world push for like you know greater justice greater equality greater equity um i don't really care how they get there i don't care what you know pronouns they prefer it's fine whatever you know <laughs> like i yeah. don't give a fuck uh as long as you get to a point where like you're not a mouth-breeding nazi uh that's the main thing to me you know yeah yeah, definitely. That's the the one we can set that as the the low bar of yeah. of like you know just no Nazis. We can anyone else you're welcome, but no no Nazis, no creeps yeah. too. No, yeah, no creeps. creeps. Nazis. Yeah. <laughs> um, it feels like you know this one's again an outsider looking at this thing, but it feels like you know there's sort of like the end of that first era of of Gilman stuff when Operation Ivy does that last show. Sure. And then, you know, you come to town, uh, the Econochrist guys come to town. Um, I guess ultimately what's, what's, I'm trying to remember the pre-Tribe 8 band. I always blank on their name, but there's that pre-Tribe 8 band, three A's like, and anyway, I can't remember now. I'm blanking on them. I'll put in the intro. Anti-Scrimpty faction? That's it. That's it. Yeah. yeah. So I guess they, they move down at some point and John from Pansy Division moves in and like, yeah. if, it feels like there's like a second wave of stuff that kind of happens. Like you've mentioned, like maybe the Gilman closes down for that first time around then too. Yeah. For about like, a month. It was only a month. Yeah. But like, yeah. it feels like there's like the sort of, okay, now it's our scene and, you know, and Blatt's obviously in filth and like all these bands kind of part of that wave. Absolutely. And like, you know, and green day were starting to get their, you know, their, their feet under themselves. Like they got the first couple seven inches out and then like Monsula fuel. Um, and a lot of those guys and gals were part of, the, you know, had been a part of the scene. So a lot of them were uh, not transplants like myself. <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll, me and Econochrist, we're transplants, yeah. 100%. Um, born and bred, baby. Uh, and so, but then we also had bands like Grimple come in. Uh, and so like the Oakland punk thing kind of re 
revitalized itself from you know the you know the kind of the Christ on parade and the neurosis and then all of a sudden it was like Rimple and Strychnine and uh uh El Dopa and like all these bands out of Con Connolly's or uh out of uh uh, uh your place too and you know and that, that's when the grups were around and so you know we would play with you know we'd see like born against or, or di at this like tiny blues bar in oakland uh building's still there now it's a different type of bar apparently but like you know it was like this like like it's kind of like a really common story you have like a rundown bar that used to feature x y z kind of music but that's not popular anymore so it's kind of run down so the owner's like yeah sure bring your weird haired stuff in here as long as you you know bring in the customers we don't really care and uh your place too was like that like you know john lee hooker used to play there but you know then it was the 90s and he didn't play there anymore and eli's mile high club which is still there like is famously a blues bar and has been for decades like going back to I would say at least the forties. Um, but now it's, and it's, that's been like a punk underground indie bar for like, and show place for like probably 25 years now, but like, and that's another place that was like your place too, where, you know, people were like, Hey, can I start booking shows here? So like, and you know, it's a, it's a, it was a stage that was like just a platform of like, you know, maybe a foot and a half, maybe. You know, the Grups, we played our first shows there. I saw MTC, DI, I said, uh, Born Against played there a few times. Um, so all the Oakland bands played there, Strip Nine and Grimple and Iconochrist. Um, but yeah, it was really, I mean, there was all these different places. I mean, it wasn't just Gilman. It was definitely a whole series of scenes and, sorry, a whole series of venues and like, like any scene, like, you know, little groups of people kind of, you know, like uh, Little Arkansas was the Conchrist House. Um, and that was right around the corner from Genoa, which was on a street called Genoa. But there's other punk houses on Genoa, but they were called something different. Like, I think Genoa House had been there the longest, so they got the street name, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. um, and and then you also had, like, a lot of the political people. You had, like, uh, uh, the Pink House, which had um, Jeremy Spew lived there. I think Ben Sizemer from Conchrist lived there for some period of time um richard the roadie lived there i remember hanging out with aaron elliott there i don't know if he was living there or staying there at the time i don't really remember uh heather Hahn, lance's sister she lived there for a while um uh uh people from uh new york city from the abc near rio like karen, karen kershoff who's now in philly back or back on the east coast in philly she lived there and then there's other houses like occidental house um and there was all these different sub 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 scenes and like they had people in bands and then like but there was all the all this cross current and all this interconnectivity that really like any good scene ended up with like a lot of really cool uh art and music and fanzines and writing and really just you know i think it i always say that people say oh well, it must have been great being there at this time and i'm like well, yeah, but the bands were the same level of quality as in your city. Like, I, and I, I know that because I'm from Philadelphia. I know I would put our Philly bands up against our East Bay bands from a few years later, 100%. It was just a matter of attention. Like, 
Who got the most attention? Well, we had Max Rock and Roll. We were on the edge of the continent. We had all these touring bands coming through. We had all these different influences and all this media attention, even though it was like punk rock media, but you had Flipside and Max Rock and Roll on this, you know, within like 500 miles of each other. And those are the two biggest fanzines in punk rock. Yeah, they're going to be paying attention to California, you know? Um, and especially when, you know, Gilman is co-founded and bankrolled by Max Rock and Roll. Yeah. Of course, it's going to get the attention. And that's fine. Um, and anyway, so that, that's why I just tell people, it's like, you know, you, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say though, like, you know, Philadelphia has got a lot of great bands, but there's so many scenes in the Bay area. Like we like just ran through a list of them happening on top of each other. And I think that's the, especially in the nineties, it becomes, you know, and then the ascent of green day probably has a large thing to do with this. Certainly the ascent of faith no more prior to that, you know, and mortem distribution setting up there it becomes the punk capital of the world and DIY punk place. And like talking to people from international, like other countries, like the, the role of Max rock and roll. And I know there's tons of critiques that people level against it, but like here was this thing that, you know, that was covering bands from countries that didn't necessarily have access to put out records and they were still being written about. And, and it was a place for them to have access to artists from all over the world. Like it's, it's such an important, scene in the 90s like you know setting up this sort of like actual like there's a point where this diy network could have been a separate economy till technology of course <laughs> tears it all away yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no yeah i mean like you mentioned like mortem but you also had like alternative tentacles mm-hmm. you had uh lookout records i mean two of the biggest labels fat. in punk rock and then very quickly fat records you yeah. had no effects and like you know like some people like kind of poo-poo that not anymore like I, i'm finding more and more closet no effects fans like the more final shows they play the more people are like oh i love that band i'm like that's not what you said in 1995 <laughs> nate nate from uh nate from brotherhood and dilly squad said he was not allowed to play a uh not wasn't allowed to play with brotherhood one time because he showed up in a no effect shirt they're like take it <laughs> off <laughs> I know, right? Oh, and like no use for a name. There you go. Perfect example. Like, yeah. They were a Gilman band, even though they're from San Jose, you know? And, you know, then they stopped being just kind of like a run of the mill hardcore band and became no use for a name, you know, the melodic punk heroes. Yeah. Uh, and it's but, like a completely know. different lineup, right? Like, because originally yeah. it's Chris Dodge and. Chris Dodge, yeah. And it's like a very different sounding band. And then eventually yeah. it evolves into, you know, the, the noise for a name that I think is obviously much more popular than the original inception. Yes. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, yeah. When I was at fat, we were, I was helping to put together the beginnings of this uh, no use for name box set that I think has finally come out. But I just remember going through like, like I, I remember reaching out to David Hayes, formerly of Lookout, co-founder of Lookout, but also then very small records um and then other people for all of the earliest no use for a name tracks um because david hayes generally has the reel still mm-hmm. <laughs> and then what he does is he he basically just like because it's ribbon so it's ribbon tape so he just cuts the ribbon tape and sends you it on a on a reel a separate one yeah just yeah that. so or you know like I, I i've done stuff where i've gotten like like for the grups we did this uh, uh discography on recess like 2011 uh 2010 and he just sent me a reel from can of pork 
And I'm like, what the fuck am I supposed to do with this? Like, I only want one song. <laughs> well, that actually, I wanted to ask you about this band because they are, they're so legendarily infamous, but Downfall, who I think are on the yes. can of pork comp. That's the only appearance, they right? They have, they have a couple of appearances. They're on a, uh, that MMR comp. Oh, the MMR. Yes, that's it. Yeah. Get off our backs. We're doing No, we know that's a, sorry. Oh my God. No, that's it. No, uh, it's, the, it's the LP comp. They don't get paid. They don't get laid. Are they on that one? Yes. That's, they're on that too. Um, yeah. And they're on like, I think a later that same year compilation that eggplant put out. Um, they're on like three or four compilations, but yeah, nowhere near what was actually recorded. Um, well, because there was a planned release, right? Like there was a catalog number even given to it for lookout. So, so here's the story. So basically I worked it out where uh, my label, Kamala and I's label, Zafio Records, right? Uh, we reissued the Grups Records on it. We did a compilation called Blag, B-L-A-G-U-E. It's a French thing, apparently. Uh, we did uh, This is Berkeley, Not West Bay with AFI, Black Fork, Dead and Gone, and Screw 32. We did uh, some Black Fork 7 inches, or one Black Fork 7 inch, a Tantrum 7 inch. Anyway, our big thing that we told Subterranean, we were trying to get to be our exclusive distributor because we didn't want to sell to anybody. We just wanted to send somebody the record so that they could sell them. Yes. You know, like uh, our big thing to Subterranean to uh, uh, Steve there, who I think still runs Subterranean somehow, um, was like, we were going to do the vinyl version of Downfall because we were. We're going to do the Downfall as a 10 inch and then uh, a Lookout would do the CD because we wanted to do vinyl. We weren't really interested in CDs. Still very much when CDs were like looked down upon as like not particularly useful, which it's come back around and now they're not really that useful anymore. Yes, again. definitely. <laughs> Records are still much more preferred. So you were ahead of the curve on that one. Yeah. Uh, ahead and behind of the curve at the same time. Oh. Yes. The um so yeah, so we were gonna do the 10 inch, the downfall 10 inch. And so we got to the point where we had like, you know, we're gonna do kind of like a blue note, a takeoff on a blue note jazz record for the cover and then i think we just gave up we just ended zafio like we ended up giving away the most of the parts of it to different people over the years and then eventually i grabbed them all back uh many many years later um but we did that before we were able to finally get the downfall tapes in our hands and get the record actually rolling because at that point Rancid was really taken off and they were like, Tim and Matt were like, we don't want to get distracted by this. Like we're busy. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, it's like, understandably, I mean, yeah, you know, like, you know, self-titled and let's go and out come the wolves. And, yeah. It's okay. Fine. And, and that's a three year period. That's like the craziest thing to think about is that yeah. they did that in three years, those three records. Yeah. Yeah. And it, you know, and then they were touring the planet. Like, uh, so it was really hard to get them to, commit to giving that the attention that it needed at some point mr brett apparently remixed everything made it sound good and that's the last i heard of it uh mm -hmm. and then it was going to be on lookout it's gonna be lookout 99 and when i worked at lookout uh i helped with the email responses to the info line and that was there were two questions that were guaranteed to come in multiple times a day one was why did Operation Ivy break up? <laughs> and two was, 
wins downfall coming out. Yes. So like they even did a pre-order at one point. And so people have uh, uh, credit slips that say downfall LK99 on them. And they're like, when can we, you know, cash these in? <laughs> at the time we were like joking, like, oh, never. And well, now it's never. Never. <laughs> now, 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 is. That's a big collector's item now, those those right? uh, downfall slips. Yeah. <laughs> it's when I was there, actually, um, yeah, at the lookout store, you guys had that free bin, that free pail. And I say you because you you were there at the time in the store when I when uh, when I was punishing the shit out of you guys. Um and in the pail, there were multiple labels for the rancid avail split that never came out too. Yeah, that's another collectible. <laughs> oh, I grabbed those labels. <laughs> I was going to say that, like, I think that was another um, uh, uh, casualty of rancid just being way too busy with the insanity that was going on around them. I mean, as you remember, they uh, were this close to signing with Sony uh, and making the jump to the major label. For a lot of reasons, they didn't and stayed on an indie, which they're still on. Um, and I would say probably more successful and better off for it, frankly. Um, I mean, there's only going to be so many, you know, like there's only so many biggest bands in the world there can be. And right now, Green Day is up there. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. Oh, <laughs> you know there's yeah. only so many, so many stadiums you can fill. <laughs> well, it, and it would have, you know, rancid. You know, like to to make the analogy of like this is a very hacky analogy, but like go with me for a second. But like you know, the the Beatles, Rolling Stones, being Green Day and the Offspring, the Who would be Rancid. You know, like the Rancid's the band that like because they weren't one of those bands, they inspire like a whole different set of kids. And oh, interesting. You know, it's I like, like a it, like there's a there's like a. I don't know, it'd be interesting to think about what would have happened if they signed a Sony. And like, I totally remember that, like them being on the, like Tim being on the cover of details magazine and me buying that being like, Oh my God, I'm obsessed with this scene. Like I got to know more and more about this thing and Madonna trying to sign them. And yeah, it would have been, yeah, it would have been wild to kind of go through as like uh as like a, a young person. Yeah. No, I mean, it was really crazy. I mean, I'm still, very close with Rancid. We just saw them up in Manchester a couple weeks ago. It was great. Great to see them and hang out. Um, but yeah, it really is. Um, I mean, obviously, I'm not going to betray any, uh, you know, confidences, but like, it was a very difficult time. Like a lot of our friends turned on them and turned on Green Day. Um, you know, famously, uh, there's the no major labels thing at Gilman, which is something that I pushed for uh, because I didn't want Gilman to be a um, a, a training ground, a, a you know a, a minor league for the majors, which is what you saw in other scenes where they didn't take those um, precautions. And you know was, we also did a no press allowed rule, and that was directly nicked from the Riot Girls from the Riot Girls scene because they were like. They got fucked over by the press a couple times. And they were like, fuck you. And we we're like, oh, that's a great move. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and we did uh, for many, 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 many years. Um, and like, you know, press would have to ask us at a meeting, a membership meeting, if they could film inside or whatever, you know. Um, but for, for and that kind of saves it, not to cut you off because yeah. I, I'm fascinated by this, but I think that's what saves the Gilman and prevents it from becoming this sort of tourist trap. Yeah. That, 
you know, it, it stays relevant because it was kept pure, not to pure might be the yeah. poor choice of words on it, but like it was kept what it was. No, absolutely. It really, really helped preserve it and protect it. And so like it was still there and it is still there today for like kids of all ages to find who need it, you know, um, you know, like it's, it's really, really important. I think we blundered into the right decision, <laughs> but, but getting back to that time, like both Rancid and Green Day were, there was, cause I mean, signing to a major is a bad fucking idea. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> we never like, did. Oh, you never did. Okay. But no. Matador is pretty big. Matador's part of Beggars, which is, I guess, oh. the world's largest independent. Okay. You know, Matador was part of Atlantic, but they bought themselves back. But that was long. That was like pavement era. Like it was before. Okay. Our... I, 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 okay. I, I admit, I don't keep that close track. <laughs> Talking shit has always been a thing in the East Bay. I think in most scenes it is, but it was really prized. And like Easty girls have a song called Talking Shit. Uh-huh. We're talking shit. That's right. We're talking shit. Repeat. Uh, <laughs> um, talk about diversity and sound. Jesus. Uh, but heckling was a really big thing. I heckled a lot of bands uh, over the decades. And, you know, some of it was, I thought, pretty inspired. Some of it was not. Uh, you know, whatever. What are you going to do? And like a lot of people were, did that. Like, you know, Jake Filth was unmistakable with his voice when he heckled, you know. Um and then, but then when Green Day signed, there was a huge backlash because they were us. Like we're all the same people. Like we're the same scene. Like literally, there was no division. And we're like, you're doing this awful thing. Like Nirvana had done it, and like that guy's dead. And then like we're used to major labels being where people were just taken advantage of. Like they might have a paycheck, but they would never make any money because they could never recoup because of tricky accounting practices by all these lawyers and accountants that, you know, it's like well outside of our experience and our ability to deal with. Now, we didn't realize that Green Day were kind of striking a bit of a new um, route by demanding ownership and doing the licensing deal. Um, and, you know, as did Rancid, as did most of those bands of the time, like who went to the next level or near the next level. Um, so later on became clear like, oh, they were doing something different. They're still, for me, it's always been like, well, those, you know, manufacturers of your stuff, like there's also manufacturing nuclear weapons and cluster bombs, like somewhere in their corporate umbrella, somewhere in the corporate family are these really awful, awful companies that do really atrocious things. And, you know, I'm talking to you over, you know, British telecoms wires. I'm on an Apple computer that was made in some sweatshop in Malaysia. So like, it's not a purity thing, but it is like, if you have art and you have something that you've created, you have some sort of control over how you put that out. And if, you know, so I think that's kind of where I was always coming from. So anyway, so I understand the shit talking, but I didn't understand, like I said, like I can separate just like I can separate awesome art from not so awesome artists, I can also separate business ethics from my friendship with those people. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah. And so, you know, for instance, like the criminals and later the first, we were on Adeline Records. 
you know, co-founded by Billy Joe Armstrong, you know, uh, it, it wasn't a problem. Um, we, uh, you know, so, so there's that kind of thing. Um, but like Rancid got hit even harder because at, at times they were kind of like the, the punching bag for a lot of people. They were like seen as like, oh, those guys, like, you know, these are all from people who actually love the band, but they were like, oh, they're, you know, they would like treat them as if they were like an entry level band, like the Exploited or Misfits, you know, and not understanding that, like, that's actually pretty fucking cool <laughs> to be an entry band, you know, but at the same time, uh, they, they didn't give them any kind of credit. And they, and especially with bands like Jawbreaker coexisting, like, you would have situations where like they would play the same shows sorry they would play the same places just different nights they would draw the same amount of people but the people running the shows would pay them differently mm. even though they were both top headliners in that scene at that time because like jawbreaker had a they were from san francisco they were seen as more cerebral um all these different things. And then of course, Strawbreaker said, we'll never sign to a major label and it's signed to a major label. And people, as you know, have completely wiped it out of their mind that that major label record when it came out was reviled by Jawbreaker. I mean, people hated that record and they talked so much shit. And part of it was because of people saw the hypocrisy of like, we're never going to sign to a major label and then signing. It's like- but but better you just keep it on the DL, just you know, just concentrate on like your art and the politics that you are sure of. <laughs> yeah, I think I think they haven't forgotten. <laughs> yeah, oh, I'm sure. They, they definitely mean, remember how people hated that record when it came out. I mean, and, seeing getting the hatred of, if I could, from the, your friends and former friends, and to have some of your friends become former friends because of this music culture um, is. I can't, I mean, uh, it really hasn't happened to me, thankfully. Um, so I've never been a, as successful to even court that kind of issue. <laughs> so it's easy for me to uh, talk about it. But I mean, I see my friends and how they reacted to that and how heartbroken they were. And even today, you know, 25, 30 years later, like some of them are still heartbroken about certain aspects of that whole process. And I'm sure you talk to anybody in a large band, you know, they're going to, you, you're going to get that. Like, obviously Green Day has that song 86 on uh, Insomniac. Insomniac? Insomniac. Their second major label record mm -hmm. about getting kicked out of Gilman. You know? Yeah, there's a lot of anger and a lot of betrayal. But there's also a lot of logic. Yeah, because I'm of two minds with it. Like, now the game's change, right? Like, we're, as you say, like, you listen to your music on a phone that's full of conflict minerals. And you know, there's sort of the cognitive dissonance, you know, about like what's actually going on here. Uh, but back then there was viable ways of doing this where it was a separate economy and where it didn't yeah. have to necessarily touch that kind of world. So I can kind of see why people were so protective of this thing and, and fighting onto it. It wasn't just because it's an aesthetic choice at this point, but there's like a real practical Kind of, and losing a huge band like that's like using a huge losing a huge economic generator for your scene in a way yeah. too a, a, a creative generator too a creative mean, generator, absolutely yeah not to undercut you know, that but um but I, and i would say just to add to that i think at the time 
Fugazi was what everybody pointed to. Like, mm-hmm. look, Fugazi, they're only charging five dollars because they're out of their effing minds, and they are one of the biggest bands in our scene ever. You know, they're selling hundreds of thousands of copies of their their releases. Yeah, and they're playing for five dollars, six dollars maybe if they're really expensive. Ooh. But like, that's the thing is is Fugazi. You know, and, I, and I've talked to Ian about it, and he he definitely has a different opinion on the subject. But like, you couldn't do that today. Like, the 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 world changing kind of made a Fugazi impossible to exist because you can't sell through thirty thousand copies of a record now without even going to a distributor, where people are just mail ordering it from you or buying it off you on the road. Like yeah. even to, like tragedy back then when they would sell, be able to sell ten thousand copies of a new album just on tour it makes things a lot more sustainable. Whereas now yeah. I, I don't know how a band would do it. It's, it's, it's so different. Yeah. Well, what, one thing is definitely like the prices have gone up. Like, you know, I remember even into the two thousands uh, people, some people at Gilman long timers kind of being like, Oh, we can't raise the price above $10. And people like me were like, well, you don't want to, you know, gouge people, but at the same time, like, you know, petrol doesn't cost what it cost in 1989, you know, 1991, and, you know, and it's even more now, like, it, like you're not going to ha- be able to have bands come in that are larger than a local band if you're, you know, because like Gilman has a very different uh, economic setup than most venues because it's all door-based, you yeah. know. Well, talk about um, bean burritos have gone up, right? Like everything that require <laughs> you need as a touring band yeah. <laughs> is now that much more expensive. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Yeah, but ex- exactly. I mean, so it, I I could see like you there. I could see there being a case like okay, you could you know limit your door prices to like fifteen or twenty dollars US. I don't really know what it would be, what the appropriate level would be, you know. And you know, I see prices at Gilman fluctuate all over the place just from afar and like i don't really know what's appropriate it's you know i'm not a local in that scene anymore so i know you brought up an interesting thing with green day because like looking at nirvana like ultimately that's a tragedy so i don't think you could truly say they're the first successful major label american punk band because it destroyed them in the process mm-hmm. like the, the 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 whole thing just like ultimately it crushed the band like even not counting the tragic suicide side of things they were on the verge of breakup just because of the process you know like is green day you know even way more than the ramones like are they the first truly successful american major label punk act and kind of set that you know like thinking about now like green day leads to like blink 22 and rise against and there's a lot more successful punk bands but until green day happened like you guys were right to be suspicious because as you said there's only like one other one you can point to and, and it cost him his life. Yeah. For, from, I mean, from that was contemporary. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Contemporary. But even like looking back, like, you know, talking heads weren't really a punk band by the time they get signed Blondie. It's arguable whether or not that was still punk band. Dead boys certainly weren't a successful Richard and the Voidoids weren't really successful Ramones. And then obviously all the other bands that tried it after that got to a certain level, but green day is the first one that really like, like made it made it in the way like you talked about like there's only so many truly successful rock and roll bands in this world and yeah and green Day's like the first punk one from america i mean like like clad yeah. and sex whistles different well i would say both of those bands weren't as successful as 
screen day. You're right. Commercially. Yeah, you're right. It's like, uh, there's no, maybe there's a clash Broadway show now, but it took a lot longer to get there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's a whole other, uh, bucket of fish, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I think that the, um, I think that the Ramones never got the success that they felt they deserved from what I I've read and heard. Um, and they definitely didn't get the success that I think they deserved because they were, yeah. like I said, you know, one of the best bands in the whole world. I think like, and you have other bands from that time period who are equally um, inventive, who are major labels. Devo comes to mind instantly. Um, they never got huge. I mean, they are like a lot of those bands that we're talking about because they have a niche that they can fill anytime they want you know they can you know i'm going to go to devo's final show in london in a few weeks you know allegedly that's happening um i i bought tickets months ago because i was like oh i'm going yeah you know um but they like and you're right by the time like there's other bands that make it but they're not doing you know and devo was obviously doing the same sort of stuff as they were doing in 74 by the time they put out that major label record but you know like other bands have to change their style green days green day like they're they're like that band from that gilman just picked up and planted on a stadium stage right and they and they're, they're playing diff, slightly different things like i think you could say like they're definitely experimenting more with stuff and like they did the american idiot thing but honestly like that's something like i could see a band like victim's family doing an american idiot kind of concept record you know like there's bands from our scene that would do very similar things. And like a lot of the, there's a label called Spam Records that had, uh, they did a rock opera. It was like people like Bobby Joy Bowl and the Children McNuggets and uh, Dory Tourette and the Skirt Heads and a bunch of other bands were on that label. And so, one of them did a rock opera. I don't remember which one, um, but I remember it came in a case and it was like, you know, literally a rock opera. And then like, of course, Schlong redid uh, West Side Story as Punk Side Story, you know. Yeah, and so like it's 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 something that is well with it. It's like that wasn't a weird. It was a weird thing to do, but it wasn't weird for them to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like it it really is. Uh, I don't know, like I think all these interesting and like the way Rancid chose to deal with success versus the way Green Day chose to deal with success versus the way Jawbreaker chose to deal with success. Like it's so it's so interesting to see when when the circus comes to town how everyone chose to engage with it i i honestly this is like as i told you off air this is one of my favorite conversations i've ever had and i could punish you all day but at this point i gotta extend the offer you gotta come back for a part two because we haven't even really talked about blats or the criminals or working at fat or at or (laughs) even lookout stuff really or forced reality when i tried to book forced reality with Gigi allen what really yeah oh yeah it's all coming together, man. I'm telling you. Wait, force. <laughs> was that the? Th- I wonder if that's. The sh- I wonder if that's no. before or after. It was, it no. was before they beat up GG. Okay, it's before they beat up GG. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's so crazy. I love that. Like, this podcast is open. Like, my favorite thing to do in the world when I'm by myself is play Six Degrees of GG Allen. You know, just- <laughs> I connect different people to Chi Allen through shared band membership or associations. And you, my friend, have opened up a whole new East Bay uh, wing of this game for me. <laughs> oh, man. The, um, the one, I only saw Gigi once uh, in San Francisco's final show in San Francisco. And it, I went with Blag 
Dahlia from Dwarves. And so like, you know, we're both guys who are front men who have, you know, certain reputations of, you know, being very aggressive. You, yeah, you guys would do your thing. Yeah, we, we, yeah. we, did, our, we did our separate things, you know, on, on stage with our bands. Uh, and, you know, it was packed out and it was like, this band total fucked open and then in Saints, who I mentioned earlier with Marion, who's a Thaumatrix and um, they were the middle band and then Gigi headlined. And like, I remember like they start playing Gigi and like, it was a place where like there were, the, the stage was on the ground floor and then the, there was a balcony and on each side of the stage, there were steps that the public could use to go up to the balcony. And so we were by one set of steps. And then a lot of people, as soon as Gigi started, went upstairs to watch from the balcony because they figured, oh, we're safe. And like Gigi comes out and he's playing and he like starts throwing shit. And like, you know, there's a couple lunkheads who in the front are like, yeah, and start trying to punch him. And like, he's just like punching women and stuff. I'm just, you know, being Gigi Allen. Uh, and he um, makes a faint towards our stairwell because we're right next to one of the stairwells we're like <gasps> and we like just dash like me and black like you know not we're not scaredy cats but we're just like oh shit <laughs> and then, literal shit <laughs> yeah literal shit and then like he, then he just goes to the other stairwell and like we look up and he runs up the stairs and all you see is this mass of people screaming for their lives like from one side of the the balcony to the other side of the balcony you know running away from this tiny micro dick guy covering shit his own shit yeah. and they're just like ah. and it was just like this wonderful i was just like this is why i'm here this is just this insane performance and it's this insane situation and you know and they played like however many songs and then like you know like it got shut down like the club was like okay that's enough <laughs> well because there's there's like a, a history of that kind of like Maybe not. No, no. Obviously, no one's like Gigi, but like, you know, like the fuck ups and foul records, and yeah. and then like the Diesel Queens, and and like you said, Dwarves, and yourself. Like, there's a there's a history of like extreme performance in, oh, in San absolutely. Francisco punk. Oh yeah, you know it's and you know it's 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 what I grew up with. You know, with pants like you know, like I saw Gwar and Tragic Mulatto in New York City in '88 when I was there. For instance, like you know, they played together at like the Limelight, some shitty club, you know. But <laughs> yeah. like it was those two bands together, and it was just like, what is this, you know? So like, I grew up seeing that kind of stuff and the Serial Killers and uh, other bands like that. And so just like, you know, I and you know, and then you come out to San Francisco and everybody's super theatrical, and you know, and like you know, people are like much more diverse uh, in terms of what they're into and who they are than. Like in, you know, in Philly, like there were definitely black people in the scene for sure. Absolutely. Not many. Um, it was still like most of punk rock at the time, very, very white. Um, but then you come out to uh, San Francisco and, you know, there's like a lot of Asians, a lot of people from uh, Polynesia, uh, various, you know, you know, island nations and shit that there just weren't huge populations of those people on the East Coast at all. So it was like really, and obviously a lot more Latinos, especially from Mexico and uh, Central America. Um, you know, it, like there was many more um, uh, diverse points of view and ways of being. And obviously the uh, sexual and gender diversity in San Francisco Bay Area has always been, you know, at the cutting edge. 
of whatever was going on in mainstream culture, you know. And, and I would, and I, you know, not to push back on it, but I would even say Philadelphia is one of the more diverse scenes because I can think of bands that had African-American members. I can think of bands with women fronting them. And there's some scenes where you can't like, well, Connecticut, you can't really, yeah. it, like there was at a time, but Fair enough. certainly by the late 80s, that hardcore scene's a, a lot different from what people have told me. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I think you're, you're, you're right. I mean, like, and you know, like, you have like Chuck Treese from McRad and you have uh, the dude from Homo Picnic from Why Die. You have, um, you know, Elizabeth from Morphine. Did I say that? Yeah, I yeah, we talked about Sorry. Morphine's earlier. But yeah, you know, so like, it was definitely a diverse scene, but it was still majority white dude. And we even had, yeah. Anyway, it, it was really, uh, I, I think like places like New York was probably more diverse scene wise. But again, I think that's because of the city, but also Philly was much more segregated overall. Mm -hmm. so. uh, as I say, man, this has been unreal like i had no idea we were going to go so i knew we were going to go some cool places as i said with the start of this thing but we have gone some places that i had no idea we'd go uh you got we got to do this part two just let me know and thank you jesse for coming on the show i think uh, jesse and Elgin getting together on the show would be fucking awesome maybe in the future or jesse will be back for a part two on his own well We'll figure it out. Jesse will be back because we got we got more to talk about. And uh yeah, that was that was fantastic. Speaking of fantastic, coming up on the next episode of the show, uh, a lot of people are very excited that I've told about this episode. And it's a, it's a fun conversation. From Wiseblood, Natalie Manning, aka Wiseblood, will be here on the show. And this is a really cool conversation, a fun conversation. I'm a huge fan of her music and to, to kind of get to, you know, talk about all this stuff, talk about DIY, talk about, anyway, you're going to hear that on the next episode. Uh, that is it for me. That is it for the show. Remember as always, black lives matter. The lives and issues of indigenous peoples all over the world matter. We need to protect trans kids and help trans people protect themselves and their rights and stop hate and violence towards people of different faiths and different races and different sexualities and, and sexual orientations and whatever, because, we're not talking about politics. We're talking about human rights. People deserve to be able to live free from hate and discrimination and violence and fear of discrimination, all this shit. Like people deserve to be able to be free. If there's organizations that are doing positive work in your community, uh, get involved. You know, I would also add to this, like we need to make sure that people have the right to choose what they want to do with their reproductive systems. So get involved in stuff that's uh, making the world a better place. You know, donate your time, donate your money. You know, if you got some money, it's hard to get that stuff sometimes. I know. I definitely know that. Uh, but you know what? It doesn't require much money. Well, I mean, depending on what you're going to do. Getting involved in punk. Anyone can do this shit. Start a band, start a fanzine, start a podcast. Podcasts are not worth it. But uh, anything, just do it. Just fucking do it. Speaking of just doing it, sign your organ donor cards because by the time they come looking for those organs, you don't need them anymore. And I've seen it perform miracles. I've seen it, seen it like not, well, I guess kind of firsthand. Yeah, I, guess I can say that. I saw it, you know, I saw it, I saw it. miracles happen through organ donation. So uh, try meditating. I didn't believe in it. I didn't, you know, and I know a lot of people have been saying this for years, centuries, centuries. But try it. 
you know, who knows, breathing, all this sort of stuff. It'll help give you calm and stick with it. Well, that's it for me. See you on the next episode. Thank you everyone for listening.